My favorite legend has to be Sarah Winchester and the Winchester Mystery House in California. This is an amazing story of the lengths people will go to to try to escape death. So Sarah Winchester married into the Winchester Rifle Fortune. After her husband had passed away and their infant daughter, she was extremely grief-stricken and didn't know what to do for solace. So she went ahead and found a local spiritualist who basically told her that her family and money were cursed by victims of the Winchester Rifles. He also told her that the reason that her husband and daughter had died was due to those angry spirits, and she was next. So he told her one way to appease the spirits is to move out west and build them their own house. So she went to work. She bought an eight room farmhouse and turned it into a seven-story mansion. Her workers worked on it 24-7, 365 days a year. Legend has it that every night at midnight she would have a seance to ask the spirits what she should do next, what she should build. So in the end, there are interesting rooms in here. There are secret passages. There are doors that lead nowhere. There are stairways that lead outside. There are windows in the ceiling, and there are skylights in the floor. Of course, all this is to confuse all the angry ghosts and to confuse them so they wouldn't kill her. Kept building for 38 years. It's such a sad, sad story that she felt she had lived this way, but it's truly one of the most interesting legends I have ever heard in my lifetime. Have you heard the story of... Welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a spooky story. Ooh, Halloween is upon us. But that doesn't mean we're going to deviate from format. Oh no. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. That's right, and we are kicking off the Halloween season through the month of October. We do have our super, super special themed month. I put a spell on you, month. And now... You're mine. We're not going to sing anymore. We're sorry, that was mean. Maybe a little later. Maybe a little. It is also the month where we will have our 100th episode extravaganza. Since we are celebrating our 100 episodes, two years of doing this, we do want to thank all of you, of course. We couldn't have done any of this without you, literally. 
you're what makes the show possible and why we're not just two crazy people sitting on our porch talking to ourselves. Right. And we do appreciate every, every one of our listeners, everyone for reaching out to us. You know, we have some great Patreon listeners. We have some new ones, Bob Sherfield and Seder Productions. But you don't have to be a Patreon listener to be a great supporter because all you have to do is listen and tell other people about it and and think. Think about what we're talking about and talk to us about it. That's what we love the most. We love to make people think, whether they like it or not. It's what we do. We Damn get it. in your heads. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of our deal. But we are so, so grateful to all of you, each and every one of you, for being our listeners. Stalwart companions on this journey. Our co-conspirators. <laughs> Familiars, maybe? <laughs> Something like that. But so one way we like to thank everyone is to do giveaways. And this month we will be doing a t-shirt giveaway. And so if you go and leave a review on iTunes or give us a shout out, like a rec- kind of a recommendation on Twitter, then you will be entered into the Magical Mystery Hat. And the good thing about the Magical Mystery Hat is it keeps all of the names that have ever gone in there in there. And so you are entered in every contest in perpetuity. Bum, bum, bum. Wait. Yay. It's like a curse. But a good one. Yay. Sure. <laughs> and of course, all of that helps spread the word about the show, and we really do appreciate that. So instead of a weekly affirmation, during the month of October, I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently. In keeping with our theme, I'm going to curse your enemies. Hooray. I mean, it's just, it's basically as much fun as getting told you're the greatest when you're, when other people who have wronged you or made to you know, have minor inconveniences in their day. You need Jesus. I know I do, honey. (laughs) In the spirit of Halloween, you can write in through any of our modes of communication, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. Go to our website. Send us a good old-fashioned email. Yeah, justastorypod.com or justastorypod at gmail.com. See? Do you see a trend? Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing we do. We try to keep things consistent. Just kidding. We're all over the place. We're all over the place. But so for this week, I just kind of did a a general purposes curse. But if you have someone who's really wronged you and you need them cursed. In general. You just write in and and you tell me about it. And I'll come up with a custom artisanal curse for said human on next episode. So for today, just our general curse for those who have wronged you. May your sarcasm sound sincere. May your attempts at cleverness be masked by the sound of the coffee shop blender. May your matte red lipstick always be on your teeth and never on the corners of your mouth. May you wear the same shirt as your least favorite person in every public place you frequent. May your favorite band do an album with Katy Perry. May you never be able to remember enough of Infinite Jest to convince people that you've read it. And may every beverage you order be made decaf by mistake. Okay, that, that's a curse. That's that a curse. last part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Sam. So, Jacob. Back to the story at hand. So many stories at hand. Today we'll be talking about a mystery house. I went to a mystery house. Where? In Abita Springs, near New Orleans. In Louisiana. In Louisiana. Okay. It was mysterious and amazing. And a lot of fun. And so we will be posting some pictures of that online. And it's more of a dime museum slash folk art folk art museum. It's some fantastic folk art. So if you're ever in the area, we do recommend you going and stopping by. And then you can go and stop by the Abita Brewery. Get yourself a beer. Or maybe you should do that before. 
either way you do it, it's going to be fun. And I got an amazing Freud postcard from the artist slash owner of the mystery house. And I'm just going to say he gets it. He gets it. We made friends. So we won't be talking about that mystery house today. We'll be talking about the Winchester mystery house. (gasps) That one has guns and ghosts and ammo. Oh my. So today we're going to be talking about family curses. And we're going to start off with the curse of the Winchesters. They have a mystery house. They do. One of America's most haunted houses. Right. It's been on all the shows. All the shows with green writing on their logos. And night vision. Lots of night vision cameras. I've seen the place. I have no idea what colors it is. I thought all haunted places were in black and white. Green and white. So... The America's Most Haunted House of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California, is full of your stock ghost stories, including footsteps down the halls, cold spots, crying, orbs captured in photographs. Really? Of course, they always do. Doorknobs turning. A piano that plays by itself? Does it have a piano that plays by itself? An organ. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even better. Um, let's see. Are there um, dancing ghosts? Wait, I'm thinking of Disney World Haunted Mansion. Different one. Clearly not the same thing. And of course, you can see the spirits of fallen soldiers. Oh, I bet they're, I bet they're Civil War soldiers. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. And a house would not be complete without the ghost of... Uh, the lady of the house? Of course. Right. The widow... Does she go and stare out the window? Of course. Miss Sarah Winchester. So this house, the Winchester Mystery House, is extremely famous. And like you said, it's been on all the ghost shows. It's not only inspired The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which... Is a fantastic book. If you want to go read a good Halloween story, it's pretty short. Oh, yeah. Pause. Go read it. Go read it. It's awesome. It's like one of the books that actually scares me while I read it. Like, actually does. A good ghost creepy scary is my favorite. Like, I just, I really enjoy a good ghost like book. Shirley Jackson, Poe, some of Faulkner's weird shit. Faulkner, Faulkner that, should scare everyone. <laughs> that's like the top three scariness. So speaking of novelists, Stephen King was inspired by the Winchester Mystery House. And he said when he was a kid, he read about it in the Ripley's Believe It or Not comic. And he used it for inspiration. Of course, you can see that in The Shining and Red Rose. Mm-hmm. It also inspired this short film auteur, Jeremy Blake, who produced three short films before he died with the house as the inspiration. And the face of the house was featured with like 1950s Western cartoons and suburban landscapes of San Jose. So there's this psychological aspect of the place. The neurosis and mad logic and creativity all flowing together in the crazy quilt of rooms. It gets unbelievably twisted. I love that. I can see that. So the story of Sarah Winchester and the Winchester Mystery House has been told time and again. Yep, sure. Mm -hmm. So in 1862, Sarah Pardee married William Winchester. And he was the son of a successful shirt manufacturer. But he would go on to lead the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. The gun that won the West. Oh, they're like 15,000. They all did. But you know what? What? I think the gun in general, just a firearm. I think that won the West. Just 
guns won the West. So after the death of her child and her husband, she believed the family to be cursed. Clearly. So she went to the famed Boston medium, Adam Coons, and they held a seance. Famed? I know famed Boston mediums. Hold your spirits. I don't got no spirits. I got coffee. And they held a seance and was told that the family was cursed by ghosts of all those killed by the Winchester rifles, especially the Native Americans. Okay, well, that I buy. Yeah, we get a little little Native American burial ground mixed in, too. Good stuff. So the only way to keep herself protected from the spirits was to build a house that would never be complete. She asked him, when will I die? And he told her, when the house is done. Why would you ask that? Why would you go see a media? I'd go see a medium. I'd see a medium. It's like who you're at while you're asking questions. I don't want to know that. I wouldn't want to know. If you ever see a medium that I'm I'm sitting with wind up to tell me when I'm going to die, you stop them. I don't want to know that shit. Now, she had plenty of money because her husband died and they were very wealthy. She inherited more than $20.5 million. She received 50% ownership of Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And received between one and one and a half thousand dollars a a, coming to thirty two thousand dollars in today's money. Lady was loaded. She was, her and her guns. <laughs> and so, as the story goes, she hired crews to be in work on the house twenty four seven. And when she died, all of it stopped immediately. Nails half hammered into the walls. But by the time she died in 1922, it had 160 rooms spreading in every di- direction. It was even larger before she died. It was damaged in the 1906 earthquake and at the time included a seven-story tower that was never rebuilt. Why would they not rebuild that? That sounds like the coolest she part. She decided not to. So the house is famed for being... Haunted. And... Crazy. Just, yeah, odd. Like labyrinthine. <laughs> So there was this blue room that was kind of in the middle of the house where supposedly seances were held and she would ask the spirits for advice on how to continue to build the home. She had spirit contractors. I've brought the wallpaper samples and I'm going to just leave them here and the one you like most, can you just exoplasm on it? Oh, thank you. You prefer the twall as well. I knew we were on the same page. You only brought one sample in here, lady. Shh. <laughs> Did you just vomit on it? <laughs> so there are staircases that go up into the ceiling. And this is famously featured on the Ghost Adventures episode. Bro. Bro. These, these stairs. Bro, look. These stairs. They don't go anywhere. They're haunted. They're definitely haunted. Because they don't go anywhere. It touched me. <laughs> Bro. There's a demon there. And so there they saw a small green vaporous hand that was caught on the camera, which you can YouTube. (laughs) There's a doorway to nowhere located on the second floor near the front of the house and the daisy bedroom. That um, sounds haunted. (laughs) The door opens directly to a drop two stories straight down. Yeah, that's kind of funny. It just sounds like a Buster Keaton prop. (laughs) Pretty much is. There's a $25,000 storeroom that contains several commissioned pieces of Tiffany glasswork. At the time, they were valued at $25,000. Holy shit. Those things, like, literally, like, not in a MasterCard way. Those are, like, priceless. Yeah, like, you could try to put a number on them now, but they're... Treasure. (laughs) 
It was a grand, elegant ballroom built almost entirely without nails and cost over $9,000 at the time. Why why no nails, Jacob? Why not? Okay. Why not? (laughs) Is it because the ghosts were reminded of the bullets that struck their hearts? Sure. (laughs) Okay, let's go with that. That's part of the legend now. You heard it here first. Or if you didn't, let me know. Because maybe I'm psychic and I can be a medium. And there's a frequent use of the number 13. Many windows have 13 panes. There are 13 bathrooms with 13 windows in the 13th bathroom. 13 steps on many of the stairways. 13 ceiling panels in many ceilings. This sounds like a Shel Silverstein poem. I know, right? And according to the Winchester Mystery House website, her will was divided into 13 parts, and she even signed it 13 times. I don't think that part's real. <laughs> Did she have a stroke as she was signing yeah. her will? Somebody was forging it, and they practiced first? Maybe so. Or maybe she had each spirit sign it. So when you visit now, you can go to... You know, on a tour of the house, there are also several museums, one showing historical firearms. That sounds downright educational. Inappropriate. Right. Uh, One, products from the time. Just like... That's what it said. Okay. (laughs) And... What? Get excited. Okay. There's a new feature you can go to. What is it? Sarah's Attic Shooting Gallery. Shut up. What do you shoot at? Do you want me to read the description? Please do. I've never wanted anything more, Tommy. This is for the enjoyment of sharp-eyed guests to make aim at fun. During the move, a rifle accidentally went off and surprisingly activated the spirits that haunt the space. And all kinds of crazy phenomenon occurred. Now guests can take a rifle in hand to activate 38 known targets. One for every year the incredible mansion was under construction that unleashed the supernatural. Bullshit. It's, it's a... It's a shooting gallery. <laughs> it's bullshit. Okay, continue. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think it's hilarious. I think it's like a vacation Bible school activity. <laughs> <laughs> Something you do at Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it belongs in a Victorian mystery house. I think it sounds like it belongs exactly there. Okay, yeah, right. They would have done that. Maybe without the effects. Yeah. <laughs> now, Miss Winchester did die in 1922. Said, house stopped construction immediately. And she died in one of the bedrooms, along with her physician attending her, Dr. Euthanasia Mead. Bullshit, Mama. No, that one's real. Are you serious? There should never have been a Dr. Euthanasia. Just never. So Dr. Euthanasia attended her as she tragically died at home in her own bed? She died in one of the bedrooms, yeah. So maybe it was a guest bedroom. That's very tragic. A lot of places it says that she died in the 13th bedroom. But I'm like, they aren't numbered. What, wait, they may have been. You don't know. No, I'm pretty sure they weren't. It's just like, let's just count till that one's the 13th. Were there more than 13? Yeah. Okay. But there were 13 like main guest rooms. That were not numbered. Not that I know of at the time. I'm pretty sure Miss Winchester did not number them. So, like, I've been very dismissive of the story because it sounds like, oh, what is the word? Hokum. Sure, that's a word. Hokum. Hucksterism. Sounds made up. But it's not that I am, like, just generally dismissive of, of a ghost story. I love a ghost story. If you think you are being haunted by something, I will pat your hand and say, tell me all about it, and I will listen, and I won't even mock you. 
But this. Save the mocking for later. Yeah, I'll mock you about other stuff for sure, but not that. This just sounds like something so commercial. Has the ring of something that's just completely fabricated. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. You want the truth? I can handle the truth. Are you sure? Jack Nicholson said I could. No, he said you can't. No, he definitely t- He said that to you, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the truth. Well, a few of those important elements. Adam Coons, the famed Boston psychic. I'm calling uh-uh on that. Right, yeah. There's no, 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 no evidence of him existing in any written text. Yeah, I did a dive. I can't find him. Unless... He erased everything from his grave. Yeah, no. Now, Sarah owned several houses and spent most of her later years in her home in Atherton. And that blue seance room? Yes, the one where the spirits chose the wallpaper. We were there. It was her gardener's bedroom. That's basically the same thing? It's kind of the same thing. What if her gardener was Adam Coons? (laughs) And he was the famed medium. Who tended her crepe myrtles. And horticulturist. So Sarah Lockwood Pardee was born in 1839 in New Haven, Connecticut to an upper middle class family. And she was neighbors to the Winchesters. So he married the girl next door. He did. And they actually moved to Connecticut penniless, completely broke. The Winchester she would marry, his father, started the Winchester and Davies Shirt Manufacturing Company. Mm -hmm. And they were very successful. Now, the Pardees also became successful because he was a master craftsman cool. and woodworker, and he did all of the kind of filigree on the Victorian homes that all of the new industrial elites were building. So are you telling me that her father was, you know, involved in building throughout her childhood and she probably had, you know, fond memories of that? Yeah, and probably an interest in it, you know? That's weird. That's not going to come up later. <laughs> That's key. So she married William Winchester as the Civil War was raging. Now, most of the members of both families were able to get out of the war because they were able to pay for deferments. But Winchester saw in the war a business opportunity. Shrewd. And in 1857, Winchester bought the failing Volcanic Repeating Arms Company. That's a terrible name for an arms company. Like it explodes and there's lava. Oh, okay. There's explosions. Right, but not on purpose. Seems Uh, bad. Okay. (laughs) And he bought it from uh, two guys, Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson. I've heard of them. Yeah. They had designed, but not produced, a repeating arms rifle. It was tricky. Oh, yeah. It was tricky. And he actually took one of his top mechanics from his shirt factory, Mm -hmm. and they improved upon the design and got it working. So he just, like, randomly was like... People need guns. People want guns. It wasn't random. But it wasn't like a lifelong passion. He oh, wasn't no. like, like, this is what I must do. I understand this better than no, anything. He was like, I need to make money. People want guns. Second Amendment seems to be quite the thing here. Seems like that's going to be a thing for a while. <laughs> so is this where our ghostly soldiers come from? It's uh, probably where the idea from them comes from. But actually... the. The rifle they produced was not picked up by the Union Army, and it was used somewhat in the Civil War because people would buy it just privately, mm-hmm. um, but by the end of the war, it accounted for 1% of the firearms. Of the firearms. So not like the gun that the Civil War was fought with. No, no. And no. he was not arming the South, I assume, as someone from Connecticut. Of course not. 
Cast bastards. Rebel scalawags. <laughs> now, during the kind of post-Civil War depression, they did stay afloat with foreign contracts for the rifles. Mm-hmm. After this kind of depression wore off, and There's gold in them, Dar Hills? We must go west, young man. Ah, haven't you been told? And so Winchester and Sarah Winchester were sent west to San Francisco to run the Western office for the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Sweet gig, I'm sure. Well, I mean, it was the West. There wasn't much going on, but they were very successful because, as we said, this was one of the guns that... Won the, the West. West. Yeah, we're, it's going to be a thing. And, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. Mm-hmm. All of that added on. Now, William and Sarah did have a baby, Annie, who died at 40 days. That's very sad. Like, no mockery. That is sad. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I had no other children after that. Now, most accounts say that the two lived happily for the next 16 16- years together well that's a curse that math does not make a curse people are crazy and then people like say it like they happened a a week apart william winchester did die of tuberculosis in the 1880s now her mother also died within a year of that along with her father-in-law so a little bit of family yeah so as curses go i'm not totally impressed with the body count though i have to tell you after this she did inherit a large sum of money. She did have a large inheritance and a large daily income. So did she go like get all spinster up in San Jose at this point? I guess she'd be the sad, lonely widow. Yeah. Um, not really. So <laughs> she moved to San Jose with her two sisters and their families. They're like, girls trip. <laughs> and she went to build a house where they all could live. So she bought a eight-bedroom farmhouse, and began construction on it. And that was Mystery House Seeds? Yeah. Okay. So construction began 1884. She did hire two architects to work on the house. And they came up with all that crazy shit? No, she fired them pretty quickly. (laughs) And she took up the plans on her own. With no training. Not really. Fun. Yeah. So it's like if people who pin things on Pinterest... Like, did all of it. Yeah. I mean, like, she was she was very interested in it. She right, was like, very interested in it. She it, wanted to learn about it. And she just learned by paying people to do. Learned by doing. she could. Well, she had the money. She had the money. The resources were there. And there was tons of timber. Look at all the fucks I give. It must be perfect. Oh, that's not perfect. Exactly. Oh, that down. And so she did have to keep changing plans because things weren't exactly, you know. Lining up. Up to code. <laughs> she wrote in one letter, I am constantly having to make an upheaval. For instance, my upper hall, which led to the sleeping apartment, was rendered so unexpectedly dark by a little addition. After another- a little addition? What do you think it was? Like a ballroom? <laughs> That after a number of people had missed their footing on the stairs, I decided that safety demanded something to be done. So over a year ago, I took out a wall and put in a skylight. So it's just always like she's this is the pyro management of architecture. It's like putting out fires like, oh, dear, I've created a problem. Let me just I just fix it. She could afford to do it. She was, and she was also experimenting. Yeah. Like she truly was. Now, she did not have people 
working 24-7. She would dismiss them for months at a time, like if it was too hot for the plaster to be put on or things like that. But she really was very innovative and had several newfangled things in her house, including steam and forced air heating, modern indoor toilets and plumbing, push-button gaslights, and she even had her personal hot shower with indoor plumbing, had three elevators, including a rare horizontal hydraulic elevator piston, which she heavily researched and decided to be appropriate for her home. And there are also beautiful elements of Victorian architecture and craftsmanship. You know, we've got Tiffany glass, we've got all these beautiful woods and inlays and filigree everywhere. I mean, she had an, an appreciation for it. It's what her father did. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, some people will say she should get credit for being an early female architect. Yeah. Maybe not the best of architects. She would have gotten there. If she was doing it for other people, she would have cared more, I'm sure. Like, it wouldn't have been like, we'll just see what happens. Which I I feel like is the whole whole house. Like, let's just see what happens. Let's see what happens. It's an experiment. I feel like she was experimenting. Uh But it was tiring. You know, she got older. She often would say, there's a very tiring process. And quote in one of her letters, if I did not get so easily tired out, I should hurry up things more than I do. But I think it's better to go slow and then to use myself up. (laughs) Just having the furnace man here and going over all the details with him used me up completely for a day or so. And she also felt that it was just never right to have guests and her family move in. She wrote 10 years into the construction. I hope someday to get so situated that I shall feel that it would not be an imposition on my friends to invite them to visit. I really think that she and I are kindred spirits. <laughs> well, it's like, I, I like have to ask the question, was she continuing to build not to escape the spirits, but maybe other than just her creativity and just experimenting, was she trying to kind of keep her family at bay? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, you can't come over. I've got to put in a skylight. They're working here 24-7. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm having them build a little a little room, and I've told them they can't use any nails, and I'm just <laughs> sitting here watching. <laughs> yes, yes. It's quite, quite amusing. <laughs> so what in this woman's history, like, why? Why would you pick this up and be like, clearly ghost? Well, on March 29th of 1895, an anonymous article was published in the San Jose Daily News. Strange story. A woman who thinks she'll die within her house is built. Uh Subheadline. A magnificent mansion, a maze of turrets and towers. The first view of the house fills one with surprises. You mechanically rub your eyes to assure yourself that the number of the turrets is not an illusion. They are so fantastic and dreamlike, but nearer... Approach reveals others and others and still others. How is it possible to build on an already apparently finished house and preserve its artistic appearance through so many changes is a query that nobody can answer, for the fact remains that it has been done. No one knows how they did it, except that they did it. Ten years ago, the handsome residence was apparently ready for occupancy, but improvements and additions are constantly being made, for the reason, it is said, that the owner of the house believes that when it is entirely completed, she will die. This superstition has resulted in the construction of a maze of domes, turrets, cupolas, and towers, covering territory enough for a castle. As fast as new rooms are finished, and they are all made with the very latest and most modern of accessories, they are furnished with the utmost elegance and closed to be used hardly at all. 
Miss Winchester and her niece live alone in the great residence, and its doors are closed to all but few. The tap-tap-tapping of the carpenter's hammers never disturbs them in their many and luxurious quarters, which are far removed from the sound as, as if it were somebody else's house that was being built. I feel like this could have come from her saying, oh, if I didn't have this to do, I just don't know how I'd keep going. Well, so people think that it was related to this kind of new rich person coming into a very rural area. So this is not like a thriving metropolis that she's moving into along with like 15 other rich people. No, exactly. She's just like the crazy old lady who bought that land. And the story circulated and someone decided to put it in the paper. Yeah, well, that happens. It really does happen. Well, uh, see the past hundred episodes. Yeah. But yeah, really, I feel like she could have said, if I just, I do it just to have something to do with myself. If I didn't have a project, I don't know how I'd keep going. And they're like, she thinks she'll die when the house is complete. So only two years later, after there was a refutation article that was published, only gossip, no truth in the story of the Winchester place, and that all of this was the result of rural rumors. And I quoted acquaintance saying that his entire idea was all nonsense. But after she died, she leaved this ridiculous sprawling mansion and they could not sell it at auction. But Mr. John H. Brown offered to lease it with an option to buy. He had priorly done well with his amusement park, Crystal Beach Resort, on the Canadian side of Lake Erie. And there they had one of the first roller coasters. <gasps> and someone died on it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And Just so they Just moved guess. to California. One of the other popular attractions at his park was a house of mystery. <gasps> you don't say. So Brown rented and eventually bought this house and immediately turned it into a tourist attraction. Uh, Took the rumors and built up on it. Built I mean, up he, on all the ideas. Know, he just kept. Building. Just kept building on it. And they still are. And especially building on the idea that this family was cursed. So this is about diddly squat as far as curses go. Like there's nothing in this story that's even, to me, smells like a curse. No, it's very, it's very hucksterism. Yeah. It is what it is. It is rural rumors and hucksterism. Which are two of my favorite things. We'd have no show without them. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about what makes a curse. Eye of Newt and Toe of Frog. Um, yes, clearly you do need those things. But there are all different kinds of curses. Some curses you can put on people accidentally just by looking at them wrong. Seriously, that's a thing. I feel like I've gotten that look once or twice. (laughs) I feel like you have too. Anyway, the word curse comes from the Anglo-Saxon cursian meaning to invoke harm or evil upon. And it's most commonly associated with this idea of malediction. What's malediction? Opposite of benediction. And mal is evil. Right. And benedictions are... They're like blessings in the church. Right. So the opposite of a blessing is a unblessing <laughs> or a curse. So the enemy or the malefactor is the victim. And the intent is to make the malefactor suffer or die. Or both. Wonderful. They may be written or spoken. This might be done to punish someone for breaking a taboo or to prophesy harm to evildoers or their kin, kind of a retribution type thing. And they're especially entrenched in folklore all around the world because they give agency to people of a lower station to act upon those in a higher station. Like a witch. Right. Well, you can't strike the king. 
or you know a person of higher rank you can't walk up and punch him in the face but you can sure curse him of course they can never prove it but they did they burned a lot of people they proved it a lot yeah so some curses are prohibitive such as the curse of king tut right they're you know supposed to keep people from doing things that others don't want done this is more social than magical you know it's the cautionary tale it's the reason not to do it and it does not hinge on any specific act. It's not like, ah, oh, they put a curse on me. It's like, no, that's cursed. You'll be in trouble if you do that. No, a written curse is called an anathema. Say that five times fast. I can't. <laughs> Say it one time fast. Anathema. <laughs> Curses can be placed on objects and transferred to people when they receive those objects, which is very sneaky. And this has to do with the idea of sympathetic magic. Now, you also see this... With things like effigy curses, which are like poppets and voodoo dolls and that sort of thing, where there's a stand-in for the malefactor. Poppets scare the shit out of me. Yep, that's true. Like, when we researched that dolls episode forever ago, like, I just had chills the whole time. That word to me is spooky. Poppet. Poppet. I do find it interesting that people are so dismissive of curses, but like... The standard line when anything goes wrong from any politician, anyone in power, any person speaking publicly about a tragedy is our thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Like we as a culture are still like prayer works, blessings work, thoughts and prayers, perfectly good. It's like a weird shorthand. Like we are so accepting of the good, but we're like curses are silly. That doesn't work. Now, some crimes themselves were so bad that they brought with them their own curses. So breaking taboos. So like Oedipus is a very good example of that. Ew. Ew. But also Oedipus has a lot to do with fate, right? Like we see that he is already destined to do these things. Yes. It's written in. He can't avoid them. And that has to do with this idea that we are basically born cursed. And in the Greek sense, in the Greek tradition, Greco-Roman mythology, fate was unbreakable. And to try to break it or change it would usually result in some sort of punishment. It's written a lot of places that like life itself was kind of a curse. Yes, that is so nihilistic. (laughs) And you see this picked up in like basically monotheistic religion, kind of generally speaking. We just kind of kept with that. We're like, that works. But this takes us to original sin, the original curse, the the family curse OG. Yeah, so this is like you were saying, we all, you know, thoughts and prayers, things like that, that's still a huge part of our culture. And also a huge part of our culture, especially in the Christian tradition, is baptism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To relieve us of our original sin. What the hell is original sin, you may say? I know. Oh, I know you my, do. My I know you bells. bells. I know you do bells. Catholic bells. We're not letting you wait. <laughs> Immediately. Wash that shit off. Yeah, and we did, uh, you had to ask for it. You had to like be personally saved, walk down the aisle, and do full immersion baptism. But then you'd go to hell. If you die before that? Yes. You don't, they say that there's- I know. Great. I know you know. <laughs> okay, I know you know. But you, we totally think that y'all are going to hell because you don't get dunked all the way into the water. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> so the Bible is very aware of cursing. It's mentioned several times in Proverbs, especially. It spends some time on the idea of cursing. 
And Moses says that curses are results of disobedience to God and his laws. Taking this artificial fabric off right now. I'm going to be cursed. Let me remove my anklets. So we see the original like genesis of this idea of disobedience as a curse in uh, I see what you did there. Yeah, I like I that. You like it? But we learned that God created man. And if you grew up in a fundamentalist household like I did, you took that literally. And that man's name was Adam, clearly. And he had authority over all the other creatures of the earth. And eventually from Adam's rib, God created Eve. Eve. And they lived in the Garden of Eden. Everything was happy until they screwed up. Right. They lived in a you know, little artisanal garden handmade by God. And it was awesome. Everything was organic. Organic. God was like, okay, there's just like this one thing. You see that tree? You see the tree? The tree. That tree. That one. The one with the really delicious looking fruit. Yes. Don't eat it. What? Oh, I was sorry I wasn't listening. I said don't eat that fruit. I said don't I'm eat sorry. it. I'm sorry. She's not wearing any clothes. <laughs> you're not supposed to notice that yet. Oh, you're right. You don't notice that. Eyes up here. <laughs> what? Don't I, eat that fruit. I can't look at you. It will kill me. Okay. <laughs> look at your toes. How are they? I did that. I did that. Oh, okay. They're like my toes and my toes are awesome. Don't eat that fruit. Okay? Tell her. Hmm? Tell her. Yeah, okay, whatever. You both of you yes. don't eat the fruit. Okay. Everything else is fine. Just like don't do that, okay? Hmm? Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. I'm gonna go do God's stuff. Okay. Okay. So that was like the rule. That was the only rule. And one day Eve was out like enjoying the fishes and the birds and the fields and the flowers and you know, like the stuff God did for six days before he went on vacation. Like everyone deserves a break every once I know, time. I know. It was good. He said, and it was good. And she was like, it is good. And she was out like enjoying the good. And she comes across this thing and she's like, oh my God, what is that? And it's a snake. With feet. Yeah, that's weird. Because the snake gets cursed. I think that's Catholic thing. No, 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 no. The snake gets cursed. Wriggle on its belly. Okay, cool. Whatever. Precursed snake. <laughs> Precursed snake. Your Bible or my Bible? And it's like hanging out, being a snake, whatever. And he's like, hey, you see that tree? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not going to have to like look for it for 10 minutes like your husband did? No. You see it? I see it. Okay, yeah, cool. it's right there. All uh, right, great. Glad yeah. you're paying attention. You want to you wanna eat some of that fruit with me? Uh, no, I think he said something about dying. Or Oh, no, 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 no. If you eat of that tree, you won't die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't know what those things are, but they sound great. They are. They're the shit. Come on, let's go eat some fruit. And while you're at it, take some to your husband. And she's like, cool. And she does. And she goes to Adam and she's like, hey, want some of this fruit? Huh? <laughs> Do you want some of this fruit? Um, yeah, sure, whatever. You're not going to ask me where I got it or if I talked to a snake or anything? Oh, I mean, whatever. Cool. This went better than I expected. Have some fruit. And then they had some fruit. And then they were both like, holy shit, we're naked. For whatever reason, that is the, the grand realization that comes with eating fruit. Revelation of evil. Weird fruit. So they cover their nakedness with fig leaves and they are very ashamed. And God's like, ah, you had one job. You're out. Out of my Eden. Go. I still love you. But go. And take your shit with you. And so because they ate that fruit, now forever, every human being ever born ever on earth is damned. And they have to come to know God and beg his forgiveness in order to get salvation and go to heaven. I'm never eating fruit again. It's so 
fucking pessimistic. How did this shit catch on? Because they have the fix. <laughs> I guess system is rigged. But anyway, the fall of Adam and Eve can sort of be understood as an allegory for the intellectual barrier that is created between man and nature. And it can also be further extrapolated that religions that were seen as like more intuitive, more like nature worship, more organic, definitely from the tree. They have something to do with that tree and they must be eradicated. I like having something external to blame. (laughs) I think it's great. (laughs) But of these curses, you know, we have like the eternal damnation thing. That was their fault. But we also, as our inheritance, get menstruation. Hooray. Hooray. This is Eve's curse. Of course. Because she like took the fruit to Adam. It's all her fault. It's all. Eve was framed. (laughs) saw it on a bumper sticker at a women's bookstore once that sounds about right so it is still called the curse even today and it's a special punishment for eve's descendants women just in general because eve is the one who talked to that snake bastard and brought the fruit to adam there's also this pesky link with the moon Ugh, menstruation and the moon cycling around the same amount of time so it's about, about 28 days yeah. both both cycles the Maori, for example, refer to it as moon sickness. And in French, it is called le moment de la luna. The moon is associated with madness and mystery and feminine power and things throughout the world. Very spooky. It's spooky. Yeah, like it's werewolves. It's spooky. <laughs> like, I don't see the link. The link is the cycle length. It's like... No, that's it. That's all? That's it. So science. <laughs> That's your science, basically. That's the amount of science they had. Uh, They're okay. like, we can count to not even 30. <laughs> What's that number that's not 30? <laughs> Let's stop there. So many cultures throughout the world believe that menstruating women are unclean and taboo, and they send them away, away to somewhere else. Go to your bleeding hut. There, yeah, literally. There are, ble- yeah. <laughs> and like, there are records of like, Cultures that would kill women for lying on good blankets while they were menstruating and things like that. It's weird. Really didn't like it. Freaked people out. It's because the wound was supernatural. We're going to gaping wound again. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Sorry. We are not limited to the mere monthly bleeding of the women. That is not all we are limited to. We have more fun shit we got from Eve. And this can include for wicked women... Barrenness, the ultimate curse. It's probably not that bad. (laughs) All depends on what you want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a time when all women, literally all women were valued for was childbearing, I can see why you go, shit. (laughs) Oh, no. So this is perceived as punishment for not being a pure enough vessel for children and... Supposedly, it was an inherited curse. How does one inherit barrenness? (laughs) People said it could be like dormant for generations, but if you couldn't have a child, it could be because like one of your great, great, greats or something. That's probably a little more uh, science there for you. Science. Yeah, because you can have some things that are inheritable that can lead to difficulty conceiving. 
such as uh, like antiphospholipid antibodies and things like that. I don't think that's what they meant. I think they meant like your grandmother looked at a man's whacker once. No, I'm just saying you you shouldn't discount. She liked the one I'd snake. What? What? I don't know. I was being an old man. I was being an ancient scientist. Stop <laughs> it! These do not exist. Apocryphal. There's plenty when you need it. Oh, women need because they're evil. Yes, <laughs> but this is not the end of all of the gifts that the forebearers Adam and Eve would leave for us. Oh no. We haven't even gotten to their progeny yet. Oh, you know that's not going to go well. No, no, no. So Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Now in Genesis, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So as we know, Cain kills Abel as they are working in the field. And God comes to Cain and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So wait, what was... What did he give God that he didn't like so much? That he did not respect? The fruits of the ground. So he was a farmer. So he was a farmer and he gave him his stuff that he had. The thing that he had. Yes. But. But what? No, but. No. So St. Augustine felt that Cain's true sin was not in the offering not being right, but that he didn't give him his heart as well. Where does it say that Abel gave him his heart? St. Augustine is like picking and choosing, but maybe I guess you could read into it that his motivation was to give the better offering. Like he was yes. doing, he was showboating like James Comey. You could, but you can look at some of the other verses in the Bible, such as in John. It says that not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And in Hebrews, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So his faith is what God really cares about. And of course, in modern Christian tradition, that definitely works out a lot better because we don't sacrifice animals anymore. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Interestingly, uh, there is... I'm so nervous about what you're about to talk about. <laughs> Cain and Abel folklore. Yeah. So there are different variations of the tale around the world are there any versions in which one kill like the wrong one kills someone like abel's the bad guy no of course not okay we keep that straight that's it okay <laughs> so like in turkey and palestine the fight between the two is over the choice of a wife i actually heard that when i was a kid yeah yeah some of these you can hear other places too yeah. in italy it has a lot of of other ideas mixed in with it cain had no great will to work he's kind of a lazy bum Mm-hmm. And Abel was much more willing to and had much more faith in God. It's 
feels like ad hoc verbal staging, I'm just saying. And so Cain becomes envious of Abel because he is so wealthy. Cain would often visit his brother and once said to him, Abel, thou art rich and I am poor. Give me the half of thy wealth since thou wishest me so well. And Abel replied, If I give thee a sum which thou thyself could gain by industry, thou shalt still labor as I do, and I will give thee nothing, since if thou will work as I do, thou will become as rich. Jesus Christ, he was a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) So one day they were together, and a merchant comes about, who was also an astrologer and a wizard. Jesus Christ, I did not know there were this many people at this time. I thought it was like five of them. Was he also like a one-man band? I think so. I don't know. I have a very good mental image of this guy. And he interprets their dreams. And so the dream of seven fat oxen and seven lean oxen means seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. I feel like some of my like, Bible story books that I had as a kid definitely took this liberty with the story. Like I'm remembering the oxen thing. Well, so while they had the seven years of good fortune... They did well. Mm-hmm. And he knew, Cain knew that Abel would save up for the famine years. Okay, so Ant and the Grasshopper. Yes. Okay. So Cain goes and... And kills Abel, because that's the only thing that's consistent. It's it. And he takes on his... Stores. Like his food stores. Yes, but his- also his like merchanding ways and dresses as him. Oh, now garments. that's a twist I did not see yes, coming. and puts a bundle of thorns on his back. And as he is working, he meets the old merchant wizard astrologer. Why does he have thorns? Just because. It's a story. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. So he runs into the merchant. I imagine that merchant's name is like Adolphus, and he's got a funny beard. Well, and so the merchant says, oh, good day, Abel, to Cain. Cain's mm-hmm. like, yes, I tricked him. But then a freaking oxen opens its damn mouth. No, no. Was it a lean oxen? They probably were. And they all begin to chant in chorus. Do they do kicks? Is there a kick line? I can only He's hope. a liar. He's a liar. Da, 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 da. He killed his brother. Killed his brother. Pretty much. <laughs> so Cain is outed by oxen. Yeah, by singing oxen, chanting oxen from the uh, merchant astrologer wizard. And <laughs> that's the sentence you just said. And so God comes down. <laughs> Don't make me come down there. Hold on. I'm going to pause the game. I have TiVo because I'm God. Do, 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 do. Okay, what do you need? And you had one job. Don't kill people. And so he condemns him, of course, and is mad because he's been practicing in witchcraft and sorcery, and he killed his brother. Where was the witchcraft and sorcery? The dream divination. Well, there were like lots of people in the Old Testament that did that, and it was like a good thing, like Joseph. And look, I didn't write the damn story. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. The punishment which I inflict is this: the thorns which thou didst put upon thy brother are now for thee. Thou shalt be imprisoned in the moon, and from that place shall behold the good and the evil of all mankind. And the bundle of thorns shall never leave thee. And every time when anyone shall conjure thee. The thorns shall sting thee cruelly. They shall draw thy blood. And thus shall thou be compelled to do that which shall be required by, of thee by the sorcerers or by conjuring. And if they ask of thee that which thou will not give, then the thorns shall goad thee until the sorceries shall cease. So whenever anyone's doing any bad magic, they're doing it through Cain's 
suffering. Yes. And also, I would think that would yeah. encourage people who didn't like Kane to do sorcery. They'd be like, he deserves this. <laughs> well, and also, you know, we mentioned like in our Fountain of Youth, St. Germain immortality yeah, episode, yeah. like the Wandering Jew, Trapped yeah. on the Moon with the sticks, and there's and definitely an association. Kane is like very associated with that. Yes. And also, we're back to that whole like witchy woman moon thing. Like yeah. the dark sorcery definitely. and they like totally don't understand it. Definitely madness. Bye. You're bleeding thing. <laughs> yes. But Cain was bleeding from the thorns. Basically emasculated. He's now in the moon with thorns bleeding. He's totally a woman now. Totally. No, this is wrong thing. <laughs> so the mark of Cain is a curse that is still also talked about today. If you go back to the Hebrew The word for mark uh, could mean a sign, an omen, a warning, or a remembrance. It's very quickly picked up as a physical sign upon Cain and his descendants. Yes, like the devil's mark. There was an expression, Cain-colored beard, Uh back in the day, where Cain and Judas were traditionally considered. Are we about to learn that gingers have no soul? To have red or yellow hair. Yes, that's hilarious. Okay. Well, there is also that Judas had been red-haired, but counter-folklore to that. <laughs> Some say that the house of David had red hair, which, of course, Jesus is descended from. Ah! So who knows? It's either really good or really bad, but we're sure it's something. It's something. That's what shit is weird. <laughs> <laughs> to our ginger listeners, we love you and we think you have a soul. Mwah! <laughs> At least half of you. Except that guy. That one. You know who you are. Sometimes the mark of Cain is identified as an actual horn growing from Cain's head. Oh, that seems like very noticeable. Like that's not subtle. And this was usually physically depicted in old Corpus Christi plays back in the Mm, Middle Ages. The triumphs. Mm, All that good stuff. Fun. So you mentioned Judas and... Cain having kind of the same colored hair, beard, and then being just tied together. Right. Mentioned Cain just kind of being tied to sorcery and things like that in Italy. So obviously, if we haven't let it go by now, we were not going to let it go when we had like New Testament stuff. We have to tie back to that. We have to remember that evildoer, that dastardly devil and make a dastardly duo. If I know anything about theologians, we're going to draw some parallels. Well... Interestingly enough, we've talked about the Gnostics before briefly, and they were these kind of outward sects of Christianity that really didn't hold with our your basic, like what has become traditionally Catholic. Like the canonical. Yes. Well, Nicene. Nicene, yeah. Which was written because of the Gnostics. Yeah, they're like, ugh, they're the, getting weird, y'all. The fr- they're fringe Christian groups, okay. Catholic groups, because there was all there was. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a Gnostic sect in the second century called the Cainites. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing they they were going to put this shit down, flip it, and reverse it? They regard all the characters held up in a negative light in the Old Testament as worthy of veneration, <laughs> as having suffered at the hands of the cruel god of the Jews, mm. and claimed fellowship with Esau, Korah, the men of Sodom, and Cain, and Judas. And they actually have a Gnostic gospel, the Gospel of Judas. Interesting. It's from the 200s. They do have a kind of original, like a 
text from the period. It's kind of fragmented. And it was just recently translated, like 20 years ago. Hey, so let me tell you what I thought. I've always thought about Judas. What did you always think about Judas, you Gnostic crazy person? I'm probably, I was. I very much freaked out the sweet old Baptist ladies who wanted to teach me Sunday school a lot. But the thing I've always thought about Judas is like, uh, people want to be like, he's, you know, devil incarnate. He is the worst thing that's ever happened. But without Judas, in theory, we don't get the crucifixion. And if we don't get the crucifixion, we don't get to go to heaven. He's definitely the agent that puts it in motion. And I never saw why, like, (laughs) it's crazy. I never saw why he couldn't have, like, been in on it. So you would have been a great Gnostic Canite. (laughs) I probably would have been the queen. Because that's what the Gospel of Judas' main theory is that he was in on it he was in seriously on he was the apostle that was closest to jesus right and much smarter than all the other apostles and jesus gave him all the good info the real info jesus told him in the gospel of judas step away from the others and i shall tell you the mysteries of the kingdom and he also said and look you've been told everything lift up your eyes and look at the clouds and the light within it and the stars surrounding it the stars that lead the way is your star. And Did you tell him second start of the right and straight on till morning? I think they might have been in a broken off fragment. It was later found in J.M. Barr's study. So they're proposing that he assisted in all of our salvation because he knew that Jesus needed to be the ultimate sacrifice. Right. Well, like all the prophecies said so. And things had worked out so far and they weren't going to kill him. I'm like, it's I, an interesting idea. I, like, it's, it's interesting. Just, sorry. It is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a Gnostic. Apparently. Can you imagine eight year old me saying this to my sweet old, like you've met her, like Miss Lily yeah, May. Okay. Like, can you imagine what her face looks like when I said this? I'm waiting for our children to do similar things. So that was kind of in the second century. And so St. Arrhenius of Gaul wrote against heresies at this time, kind of talking about all the different Gnostics, one of the reasons we know about all these fringe groups is this text has survived. Right. People are going, can you believe this crazy shit that they believe? And he said that they deliberately practiced evil and that salvation could be attained only by passing through all experience. Whenever any sin or vile action was performed by them, they asserted that an angel was present whom they invoked, claiming that they were fulfilling his operation. Perfect knowledge consisted in going without a tremor into such actions as it is not lawful even to name. Well, um, Snake did say that if you ate the fruit, you'd know good and evil and be like, God, I see where they got it. I would have been the best canine. <laughs> well, it's hard to say, you know, is he just trying to vilify them? You yeah. Know, how bad were they? We'll never know. We'll never know until we invent time We machines. need a medium. Let's go find Adam Coons. Yes. I am channeling Judas. And are you still channeling Judas? No. Okay. Done. And then they are most likely mentioned in St. Jude's epistles Mm. as heretics that are said to have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness as filthy dreamers who defiled the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. I totally would have been their queen. I would have been their queen. (laughs) So as we are wont to do, humanity decided to use the curse or the mark of Cain as a physical trait that could be used to exclude people that shock you at all. Are, yes, we, getting, are we going to get to anti-Semitism and racism now? 
Is that what's going to happen? Just a little racism. Okay. Just a tiny bit. Since we did so much recently. Tiny bit. The Armenian Book of Adam from the 5th or 6th century. It's written, And Lord was wroth with Cain. He beat Cain's face with hail, which blackened like coal. And thus he remained the black face. Which may be kind of a mistranslation. Or just a fun retelling of like that his countenance fell. It grew dark. Yes. Oh. But it stuck. Language is magic. Uh-huh. Middle High Germanic Genesis of the early 12th century. Some children produced by the evil descendants of Cain lost altogether their beautiful complexion. They became black and terrible. There was nothing like them. So, of course, this ignores the biblical tradition that Cain's descendants would have died in the Great Flood. Oh, clearly. But don't worry. We're like nothing if not contradicting ourselves, they said. Don't worry. Because this got conflated uh-huh. with another curse from the Bible. Cool. The curse of Ham. Ham. Like, you, know you know the curse of Ham? I don't know the curse. That, you know, he like, he saw his father's nakedness. First of all, one, Ham is a person? Yes. Cool. Noah's son. God, yeah, I do remember this. Shem, Ham, and I can't remember yeah. the other one. There are three. Okay. Um, to what nakedness? Nakedness. He saw it? He saw it. Yes. He saw he's Okay. Okay, dear listener. <laughs> and Samantha. I feel like I'm not like I should have gone to Catholic school for this. So <laughs> Noah's like out drinking. <laughs> Why? And he passes out naked. Naked. And his son Ham comes upon him naked. Uh-huh. And sees his father's nakedness. And now my PhD theologian, freshman religion teacher, Mr. Keefe. Hello. <laughs> I bet he listens. God, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> Although, actually, he's like one of the best teachers I ever had. Taught us all that this meant that they had um, sexual relations. <gasps> well, I feel like this would have gone on Noah's permanent record, and I don't know if he would have gotten an arc. So, since he did this heinous act, mm-hmm. he was cursed to forever be a servant is this in the bible yeah okay so you get this kind of conflation of these two ideas of the mark of cain being blackness and the curse of ham servitude and you get black people have to be servants oh my god no 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 that's icky (laughs) but no one said this in public ever so these characters are depicted as of African origin in medieval art. Uh-huh. And there may be some elements of it in Islamic culture kind of uh-huh. contested. And before the 16th or 17th century, this kind of racial interpretation was kind of wishy-washy. Right? Some people believed in it. It was not like a universal thing. Okay. But... It really, really takes hold. On oh, America. And American folklore. No. So none other than Joseph Smith established that, that black skin was the mark of Cain. Quote, for the seed of Cain was black and had not place among them. Brigham Young and several other prophets seconded this opinion. Which, by the way, the Church of Latter-day Saints on their website does kind of own up to this. They say that they think it's true? No. No. What do they say? Like the, the like it was wrong. They're like, oh, that's not right. They were like, that was kind of just in the time with the terrible thought process that people had. But yeah, he was a prophet and definitely right about everything else. <laughs> but interestingly, these ideas still 
around in Mormon folklore, and there are accounts such as from an early Mormon leader, David Patton, who encountered a very tall, hairy, dark-skinned man in Tennessee who said that he was Cain. The account states that Cain had earnestly sought death but was denied it, and that his mission was to destroy the souls of man. Cool. But. He's a cool story, bro. Holy cow. Need to get home. So originally, early Baptist preachers in the South were very against slavery. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't do very well. (laughs) Well, it seems like they turned that boat around. Mm -hmm. By 1784, uh, the Methodists had formally abandoned their efforts to restrict slaveholders from membership. And Baptists increasingly saw nothing wrong with it. How? They needed someone to pay them. (laughs) (sighs) Hucksterism. Worship services became segregated. Ministries of black preachers were restricted to slave communities. And they used a strong support of slavery, citing the curse of Cain, mm-hmm. the curse of Ham, mm-hmm. and the Tower of Babel oh. for segregation. So Benjamin M. Palmer was a extremely famous Southern Presbyterian preacher in New Orleans. And he lived from 1818 to 1902. And he was all about some slavery. And he was also a huge influential advocate for secession. His Thanksgiving Day sermon was largely influential in Louisiana seceding from the Union. Thanks. Fuck that guy. <laughs> After he was an apostle of the South's lost cause, saying it was God's lost cause. <gasps> And he was exiled when federal troops took NOLA, and he went on to preach about the battlefields, including to General Lee's men, and General Lee says he'd, he'd rather have him in the camps than a whole battalion of men. I think that Lee quote is apocryphal, because there's also a quote that's like, I'd rather have five musicians than a whole battalion of men. Like, it's the, so like, I did not fact check that one. I do have some of his quotes, though, don't oh, worry. Oh, good. To tie this in a little with our past episode, the South really saw slavery as a question of honor. Cain had killed his brother, or Ham had um, seen his his father's father's and both were very dishonorable. Only something a savage brute would do. Uh Uh-huh. Not a fine gentleman or a southern belle. Oh, God. So, a few choice quotes from Dr. Palmer, Reverend Dr. Palmer. The descendants of Ham, in whom the sensual and corporeal appetites predominate, are driven like an infected race beyond the desert of Sahara, where under a glowing sky nature harmonizes with their brutal and savage disposition. Cool, what a go. <laughs> Upon him was pronounced the doom of perpetual servitude, proclaimed with double emphasis, as it is twice repeated that he shall be the servant of Japheth and the servant of Shem. Japheth, I couldn't remember his name. Accordingly, History records not a single example of any member of the group lifting itself above the savage condition. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was doing very selective reading. That's definitely his history book. That he had custom printed. <laughs> he had to write several letters. So- they were lugubrious and glorious in their detail and grandeur. So just as Cain was represented with like a horn and... Things like that in the Corpus Christi plays in the Middle Ages. Cain was represented in blackface and minstrel shows. Shut up. Interestingly, Mary Kinsley, a 19th century English Africanist, 
That's the thing. Reported an African cane story. And the story was probably brought to the non-Christianized Africans from the Muslim community. And so, to quote, accounts for blackness and whiteness of men by Africans who have not been in direct touch with Europeans is that when Cain killed Abel, he was horrified at himself and terrified of God. And so he carried the body away from beside the altar where it lay and carried it about for years trying to hide it, but not knowing how, growing white with the horror and the fear. So he learned how to, to bury the body from the crow. Mm-hmm. Talked about. But all his children were white, and from Cain came the white races, while Abel's children were black, as all men were before the first murder. <laughs> Remember, this is a this is a pre-European contact story. Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with race relations. Just like those people are weird. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, the story was carried to America and recorded as early as 1820. Wow. Alright, before we move from the mark of Cain, do you want to get crazy? Um, well, clearly I'm here doing this, so I want to hear the weird stuff, right? So when you go deep into the evangelical craziness, Cain was actually Satan's son, and not Adam's, and that all really bad people in the world are Kenites, and part of the serpent seed. Parcel mouths. All the bad <laughs> Jewish priests were also really Kenites pretending to be Levites. And Israel was led astray only by this fifth column. No, shut up. Now we are anti-Semitic shit. In fact, all Jewish people living today are not Hebrews or Israelites, but Kenites. No. And the Jewish people know it and are lying to everyone. And maybe some of them are reptilian hum- humanoids. I don't know. <laughs> This guy had too much sugar. I said, do you want to get crazy? No, this is insane. Okay. But I hate to tell you, folks, that's modern folklore. (laughs) Ugh. Okay. But interestingly, even with its negative connotation, the mark of Cain. Now, what was the mark of Cain? What was the purpose of it? Just to make sure that no one killed him. Right. It's a good thing. Well... I mean, unless you extrapolate that he couldn't die a natural death either, in which case then you get to that. But I feel like that's adding to the text. That's adding to the text. It's adding. It's a symbol of God's eternal love. That even though you did this horrible thing and you can't have, like, you do deserve to be punished. Yes, but I won't let anyone murder you. (laughs) So you can read a positive light on it. Of course, we would never do that in history. That'd be terrible. No, How are you going to sell a religion if it's positive? Clearly not. (laughs) Get some never-ending love. I mean, also look at Curse of Ham. You know, what is his curse? Servitude? Yeah, and, you know, we're all asked. Oh, to be servants like Christ was. Have a servant's heart. Yeah. Which is clearly terrible and a punishment. And wait, why? This math is... It's just showing how you can read whatever the hell you want into things. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because the Mark of Cain, the curse of Ham, still used today. Still among the backward crazies. (laughs) So you see this emphasis placed on origins, these you know important figures, like historical, mythological, what era they may be. It's the leaders. It's the shared ancestors, major figures that are associated with these curses, these things that affect us all. And you see the idea that a person in a position of power or importance can affect all those who follow them, kind of transfer from this, like, ancestor to a sovereign the king curse the king's actions affect all his people 
There are so many cursed kings. Oh, yeah. Well, like all of them. royal lines. Pretty much all of them, yeah. So you see a really strong emphasis on this start to come out in the Celtic and Anglo-Saxon traditions, this idea of the cursed sovereign. In a lot of the legends and early folktales featuring great heroes, you see the emphasis placed on different taboos and breaking the taboos, resulting in really negative consequences. And this provides a check on the hero, some task, some thing he can't loophole his way out of, something he has to outsmart. It gives him a challenge because they're great and mighty and can do anything they want. Blah, 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 blah. So they need things that, for whatever reason, don't touch that fruit. Well, you have to prove your heroism. Right. So they need some sort of challenge. Now, the consequence of breaking these taboos is not only felt by the king, but felt by their people, felt by their nation at large. And you see things like this arise in the Arthurian legends where, you know, like the wasteland is created by the king's sin. Also in the Celtic Anglo-Saxon-ish tradition, you get prophetic curses. All about that. Now, prophetic curses are like, one day your tower will tumble. And the birds will come, and gingerbread men will rise and eat your eyes. What legend is that? It sounds like crazy jibba-jabba, but like one day something happens, and they're like, oh, clearly that's what he was referring to. Must have been. He did have a red beard. That's like everyone here. (laughs) So one example of prophetic cursing is the McAllister curse. Now, this was uttered by a widow whose two sons had been hung up on a gibbet outside her house as she pleaded for mercy. That'll cause a curse. Right. And she said, never shall there be a son in the house of McAllister. And they never had a son in the house of McAllister. Like, this is the format. Then the story of the Brahmin seer, which I did not realize is like a linchpin in Scottish folklore. It's like a thing. Tell me about it. I've never heard of it. Okay. So the bronze seer was a man called Sallow Kenneth the Enchanter. Sallow. I know. What a good word, right? Mm, yellow. and. Mm-hmm. Jaundice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The malefactor in our story is Lady Isabella Mackenzie, and her husband, Lord Kenneth Mackenzie, was the third Earl of Braun, and he was charged with protecting this gifted seer. Sallow Kenneth. Sallow Kenneth. From all accounts that I have come across, it seems that Sallow Kenneth was a bit of a dick. Seers have that just in their nature. <laughs> They're like, I'm concerned with this world, and the next, I cannot be dealing with your bullshit. Ain't nobody got time for that. He respected no one, had very gloomy predictions. He was never like, you're going to get a unicorn. So he was reincarnated as Rasputin. Basically. Um, and had quite a sharp tongue, and was kind of just all-round sassy. In fact, I'm going to call him Sassy Kenny from now on, because that is better than Sallow Kenneth. To put this in context, the idea that people were gifted with second sight was very commonplace at this time in Scotland, Ireland, etc. Right, like if you were born with a call, uh, yes, which and is he like was, part of your, the amniotic membrane mm-hmm. still in your head at birth. And he had what they called a call eye, which I think is like either a lazy eye or cataracts or something, because it talks about like how it looks different. Interesting. And I think it's like not associated with a call, but they think that you get it from a call. And it's like, hmm. yeah, yeah, I don't think. know. Yeah. Cool. Like I'm reading, this was a text from like 1944 that was referencing stuff from way before that. So I have no idea what that means today. And he also had a special stone with a hole in the middle. Oh, like a fairy stone. That he looked through. Yeah. they you, People still use those today. Right. <laughs> and he could see 
the future when he looked through the stone or see what's going on currently. And he was sort of a local celebrity of sorts. And due to his ability and the belief that others in the community had in his ability, he sort of thought himself to be Teflon Don. Well, I mean, someone moves against me and just grabs the stone and is like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and no one would say anything anymore. It was the weirdest thing. So one day, Lady Isabella hears that Sassy Kenny has said something ugly about her kids. <laughs> and she's like, go get him and bring him here. My husband's away in Paris. He's not here to protect him. And I am going to just get him once and for all. Steal that damn stone. No, no, no. She, Shove it up his ass. What? She has another plan. She <laughs> right. has another plan. So the legend goes, though briefly he had been afraid, his confidence was back. So he came and was ushered into a luxurious drawing room in the castle. The day was warm, yet Isabella lay on the cane daybed by a blazing fire, and all those round her were sweating in the heat. She looked hectic and unwell, yet still he felt secure. His bow was a mockery. Lady, what do you want to know? he demanded, arrogantly, ignoring her long, calculating look. He saw only her distressed, angular white face, her sleepless red-rimmed eyes, the rapid rise and fall of her breast under her red satin dress. Use your stone, she said harshly. Tell me if my lord is well. First, he said agreeably, tell me where he is. Paris! She spat out the word. Look in the stone, tell me! Lifting the stone to the cam of his left eye, he saw what he saw. Unable to stop himself, he laughed out loud. Only after lowering the stone and seeing the look on her face did he begin to sense the trap. Why else had she called in all the other narrow, kirk-obsessed fools, if not to witness witchcraft? Do you laugh? she snapped, now up on her elbow. He breathed deep. Fear not for your lord, he said smoothly as he could. He is safe and sound, well and hearty, merry and happy. She glared. What do you mean, happy? Where is he? What is he doing? Oh, God. In a sweat now, he widened his lopsided grin and tried to charm her. Ask no more questions. Be content. He is happy and well. She sat up, hot eyes boring him. He felt the heat of her hate. But where is he? Who is he with? When is he coming home? He was in a dilemma. To tell the truth, he would be dead. For there was no mercy in her eyes. She had witnesses. She had trapped him. If he lied to save his skin, everyone would know within a week. He crawled before her. He was afraid. In a monotone, he said, I see your lord in a magnificent room. He is in fine company and far too agreeably occupied to think of leaving Paris. So she trapped him where there was like no way out. Right. <laughs> so he'd either have to speak bad about the king. Or his lord, yeah. Or, yeah, or lie. Yes. And then that would disprove his magical powers. Right, and so he finally confesses, I saw him in a gay and gilded room, grandly dressed in velvet silk and cloth of gold. He was on his knees to a fair lady. Oh, no. Kissing her hand, but let's just... No. Yeah. How dare he? And so he's going to be escorted out of the room. He's told he's going to be executed. So before he goes, he turns and he pulls out a stone and he looks through it. He cried... I see into the far future, and I read the doom of the race of my oppressor. The long-descended line of Seaforth will, ere many generations have passed, end in extinction and sorrow. I see a chief, the last of his house, 
both deaf and dumb. He will be the father of four fair sons, all of whom he will follow to the tomb. He will live a careworn life and die mourning, knowing that the honors of his line are to be extinguished forever, and that no future chief of the Mackenzies shall bear rule in Brahim or in Kintail. After lamenting over the last and most promising of his sons, he himself shall sink into the grave, and the remnant of his possession shall be inherited by a white-hooded lassie from the east, and she shall kill her sister. And as a sign by which it may be known that these things are coming to pass, there shall be four great lairds in the days of the last deaf and dumb, Seaforth, Gerlach, Chisholm, Grant, and Ramsay, of whom one shall be buck-toothed, another hair-lipped, another half-witted, and the fourth a stammerer. Oh no, what a terrible curse. And so then he was cast headfirst into a hot tar barrel. Wonderful. So this did not come to fruition until Francis Humbertson Mackenzie inherited the title. So the father will be deaf and dumb. Right, and so Francis, Frankie, gets scarlet fever when he's 12. And goes deaf. Mm-hmm. Now the doctor wrote down when this happened that he saw like a witch roaming his room during his delirium when he had scarlet fever. And he realized that what he saw the witch doing, which was driving something into the foreheads of all the other boys in the room. Oh no. Was what had customarily been done to the dead, like during the plague. Oh, to make sure they were dead. And like didn't make mark their bodies to be carted off. Oh, okay. That's so they could cry out. I'm not dead yet. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Those at whose bedside she'd paused were all damaged by their illness. She'd come through, and everywhere she'd stopped, something lasting had come about. He was stone deaf thereafter, and for a long time he couldn't speak, but he did eventually recover that later in his life. Like, learn to, to manage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he married Mary Proby, and they had four sons and six daughters. Uh-oh. Four sons. What's the second part of... Sassy Kenny's last statement. That all of his sons would die before him. Right. So they did, in fact, all die. And then, you know, the subsequent thing was that he would follow them to the grave, being sad, mourning. And he dies. After lamenting over the last and most promising of his sons, Francis himself indeed sank rapidly and died barely two months later. There were no male descendants. So part three. That his estate would pass through some white-haired lassie. From the east. And she would kill her sister. So this happened too? Yes. They went to his eldest daughter, Mary Frederica. In seven years, her sister Caroline died when the horses drawing their carriage bolted and went down a long slope towards Conton. Caroline was killed. Mary was not. It was Mary's coach. She killed her sister. So after the death of her sister and through a course of events... The property went to like a nephew who died airless, and then during World War II, the entire property was completely destroyed. Took a while. Prophecy seems to have like mostly come true, and this is just one of many, many Sassy Kenny stories. Sallow Kenneth is a major fixture in Scottish and Celtic folklore. Mm, so maybe to dig into him a little more. Yeah, day. he may be back. Another he may be day. Back. But as rooted as this is in folk tradition, it is also very much incorporated into the official church doctrine. Official? When we talked about some of the official. This is uh, extra textual. <laughs> oh, okay. 
the tradition part. Yeah, the tradition. But for a bit, until around mm, 1534, the church claimed that they had kind of like licensing rights or some kind of rights to God's cursing power. To curse people? Yes. Oh. Yes. So if you behave badly, the church would curse you. So don't. Unless you bought them off. Right. Basically. Yes. Now, for example, there was a guy that went to a vicar and was like, someone stole my shit. And vicar comes out in the square and is like, whoever took it, confess or bring it back or you will be cursed forever. Okay. Was that like a common thing? Yes. Really? Yes. It was very first grade. Like (laughs) the whole class is going to be punished if you don't. Four times a year, the... Thieves, murderers, and enemies of the church were, quote, cursed by bell, candle, and book. Ooh, they got the trifecta of I don't curse. know what it means, but I like it. Now, the Protestant Reformation kind of banned the use of cursing for personal reasons and was like, don't do the thing where you call down God's wrath just because someone, like, moves your car keys. That's so Old Testament. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Let's get it together. Now, one thing that survived this kind of like doing away with a curse thing was the beggar's curse. A scary beggar? Right. A fixture of folklore. (laughs) Absolutely. Now the powerful had their cursing power taken, like the church, the church officials. This is when you get your liminal marginal characters getting power. Yes. The only way they can. Yes. Now magic. They retained their links to curse power and it was the perfect weapon for the poor to use against the rich. Cause you know, as we mentioned before, can't strike the king. That's all they got. But you can't curse him. So William Shinstone wrote in the 18th century, if anyone's curse can affect damnation, it is not that of the Pope, but that of the poor. And there's still a belief in many parts of the world that a beggar can curse you for not giving them alms. So there was sort of a curse etiquette. There was a procedure for cursing people. So an Emily Post for cursing? Do you have it? Yes. Where? It's the Post Grimoire. It's famous. Uh, of course. Routinely, curses were delivered in public, usually on one's knees, either in the street or the churchyard. And this is because, you know, we've seen that God has magic cursing power. The church has magic cursing power. Because they like supplicate a Basically, little. yeah. It's like, you know, as Madonna said, it's like a prayer. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. That's what that was about? Madonna, the Holy Mother of God? Oh, that one. No, I'm kidding. The material girl. Get it together, man. So basically, you pray to God to curse people who had done bad things to you. So considering the tie between God and divine justice and magic curse power, it is no surprise to learn that monks had magic cursey superpower. Well, of course. I mean, they were always on their knees. What? Praying. Oh, I thought they were seeing nakedness. We're not going there. Okay. So this all came to a head when King Henry VIII, you know, the one with the turkey leg. Or did he? Decided to divorce his first wife and the church. Yeah, and just start a new one. Yeah, because that's funsies. what you do. You can, if you're the king. He's like the original startup guy. You're like all the podcast no. ads that are like, no. they couldn't find razors, so they started their own factory. They wanted to wear nice watches and couldn't find any, so they started a company. Rent a swag. What? <laughs> Good 
Tommy's closet, bitch. So original startup started his own church. He did. And so then he seized all of monastic land and he was like, I'm either going to sell this or just pass them out to my friends like favors at a six-year-old's birthday party. Oh, this is going to go so well. Yeah. And people were like, uh, Henry? Oh, Henry, no. Don't do that. It's going to make a curse. And he's like, whatever. I do what I want. I just want to do hood rat stuff with my friends. And then he proceeded to do so. But there were a number of things about this that were just not going to go well. Seizing monastic lands, casting monks out, and then giving it away to rich nobles. Terrible idea for a number of reasons. It's its kind of sacrilege to take things from monks or priests or holy people. You're just not nice. Especially according to them. Yes, yes. And since they were writing the rules. Yes. And ill-gotten goods were seen as tainted, never going to prosper. You know. I guess it's going against the whole Ten Commandment thing, too. Yeah, a little bit. Since these properties were large estates, they would most likely stay in these families. And this gives rise to this specific kind of curse, this generational curse. Because the land is cursed, the place is cursed, the family is cursed. All tied together. Were they built on ancient Indian burial grounds? Ancient Druid burial grounds. Well, that's probably true. Yeah, and that's the equivalent. That's like, you'll hear that all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That's the equivalent. I was joking. So in 1600, it was widely believed that families possessing monastic land would die out within three generations. Now, Sir Henry Spellman wrote in his book, History of Fate and Sacrilege, which was published in 1647, all about the statistics surrounding these these terribly cursed properties. Well, that sounds titillating. Oh, it is. Now, he analyzed the fate of all former monastic estates within 12 miles of Rogham, Norfolk. You know he did that by hand. Oh, yes. In less than a century, he wrote, the monasteries had flung out their owners, and some of them, four or five or six times, not only fail by issue, or of ordinary sale, very often by grievous accidents or misfortunes. In addition, nobody else had dared to build on these otherwise attractive sites for dread of infelicity that pursueth them. Now, in 1895, the fourth edition of Spellman's book went further, calculating that the families of over 600 of the original 630 grantees had paid for their sacrilege by the 19th century. Oh, my. Now, one case is particularly notable, and that is the case of the Browns who occupied Caudry Castle and Battle Abbey. Coincidentally, Downton Abbey is one of these places. Downton Abbey. Just saying. That's why things are going so poorly for them. Definitely curse. So, there was Sir Anthony Brown, and he was both the master of the horse and the chief standard bearer for King Henry VIII. It's a great title. Chief standard bearer for King Henry VIII is a joke. It's like being Donald Trump's ethics lawyer. (laughs) Aw, he needs a few of those. Yes, he does. Okay, so Henry had been upset with Anthony because he arranged his marriage to Anne of Cleves. Now, for those of you who don't know that fine little legend, she was presented with a very attractive portrait of Anne. Anne was like, sure, I'll marry her. Yeah, we know back in the day they loved some Photoshop. Yes, she was airbrushed beyond belief. And when she arrived, he referred to her as a Flemish mare. Oh, that's not nice. He doesn't look much better. Yeah, no, he didn't. He essentially exchanged her for store credit. But he forgave Anthony, I guess, since the annulment went through and all seemed well. And he gave him this monastic estate 
as a, like, thanks, dude. Now, three months after he was given the estate, he had renovated it and moved in and was hosting this large banquet and this angry monk wanders in. An evil monk? Angry. Evil? Yeah, an evil monk. And I'm assuming that he was both peeved and woefully underdressed for the occasion. And he pronounces the following curse. He says, By fire and water, thy line shall come to an end, and it shall perish out of the land. Oh no, he's going to go like Henry VIII. Yeah, basically. So Horsemaster is like, okay, whatever, get out of my party, big deal. And then, and then, things seemed fine for just 250 years. But then the estate came to the 8th Viscount of Montague. Interestingly, he drowned in a boating accident while trying to go over some falls. And unbeknownst to the Viscount, word had arrived at the hotel just that day letting him know that the estate had burned to the ground. He's having a good day. He's having a good day. Well, he's dead, so he didn't know about it. But the the news had arrived at his hotel while he was busy being dead. If you were keeping track, by fire and water. Shall no. your line perish from the land? Yes. No. Yes. Oh, no. The monk cursed him. The mer- it did. And so the estate went to his sister, who had no children, and the title went to his cousin, who also died childless oh. in 1797. And thus... Curse line magic. Ends. Yeah. And now Henry VIII, his line did not go so well either. Things were things were tough on old Hank. Was it tough for him? Not him. Was it? No, he made it tough on everyone else. Everyone. So we all know that Henry was fond of marrying. And he killed all of them. Not all of them. No, I know. But people say that. Yeah, and he all of them died. No, they didn't all die. Well, they did eventually, but His first wife, Catherine of Aragon, is a particularly tragic figure. She is someone that could be explored at length in a bodice stripper. And I mean, she has been. And she has been. Like the other Boleyn girl. Right. Tudors. Yes. So much, so much of this is just swoon-worthy. Well, Henry VIII was looking fine in the Tudors. I don't think he looked like that. He did not. Even before his gout and everything else. Now, Catherine of Aragon was his first wife. She had been married previously to his brother, but his brother died five months into their marriage. Henry VII, for a minute, was like, maybe I'll just marry her. And her parents were like, ah, could you not? And he's like, fine. She can marry Henry when he gets old enough. And so she had to wait like seven years for him to be old enough to be married. Now, his father also had to receive special dispensation from the Pope because there was a, you know line or two about not marrying your brother's widow but they were like no it's fine really no big deal go ahead and marry her we get it and so they did get married she was 24 and henry was 18 at the time of their marriage but it didn't last too long oh well it did actually that was supposed to be a considerable marriage considerable lifespan for a henry the eighth marriage comparatively. like comparatively so after their marriage she had seven pregnancies and you may say to yourself but there's only one child. They only had one daughter. A girl. A girl of all things, a girl. That is because she had a series of the most unfortunate pregnancies. She was basically pregnant from 1510 to 1518, just eight years. That sounds terrible. It was. In January of 1510, she miscarried a girl that she'd carried at least six months. And then in January of 1511, she had a son named Henry, and he was christened and had all the pomp and all the circumstance and all the things. Then he died. Yeah, he died when he was 52 days old. And then in November of 1513, she had a stillborn boy. 
And then in January of 1514, she had a stillborn boy who was a term pregnancy and they did not like there was no sign that things were going wrong then. And then in February of 1516, her daughter, Mary, was born. And then she had a miscarriage in 1517. And then in 1518, she had a term pregnancy and her daughter died a few hours after her birth. At this point, Henry is becoming quite agitated because he still does not have an heir. Need an heir. He's getting obsessive. And then he goes back and he looks at that thing about marrying a brother's widow. A curse. A curse. A and curse he's like, upon his house and line. It says that they they will bear no children. And the Pope's like, you're reading that wrong. Don't do that. <laughs> and it didn't help that he had taken up with a sweet young thing, the other Berlin girl. <laughs> oh, no. I saw that movie. I didn't. Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, right? I don't know. I didn't see it. <laughs> you watched this without me? <laughs> Maybe. So he wanted to replace her with Anne. Anne was 11 years younger than Henry, and you may remember that Catherine was older. So much newer model. He was very interested in replacing Catherine, and he also didn't think she could have any more children, which she probably couldn't or shouldn't have. Eventually, an ecclesiastical convention in England declares that this whole brother's wife, widow thing definitely taints the marriage, and it's not legal, and they annul it. That's fortunate. And they banish her from court. They, like, lock her away forever, right? Basically. Now, she's sent to Kimbleton Castle. And she wears sackcloth and, like, only emerges from her cell to pray. It's, like, it's not supposed to be jail, but it's kind of jail. She's also forbidden from having any communication with Mary. And the bait there is, if you will recognize Anne as the true and rightful queen of England, I'll let you see your daughter. I'll let you see your mother. And she wouldn't? No. She wrote to him over and over again, like, I love you so much. Don't do this to me. Please, I love you. What have I done? Help fix it. Help me. Begged. Begged until the day she died to go back and live with her husband. Because, I mean, that was her entire identity. Her entire world was wrapped up in this role as queen of England. I mean, she was the queen. She was the queen. And then she was wearing sackcloth. And so she died when she was 50. And it happened very quickly after the birth of Elizabeth, Anne Boleyn's daughter. And people speculated that she had been poisoned. <gasps> but they think now that she had some kind of ovarian malady. So They'd have been like waiting a really long time to poison an old lady. She was 50. It's not old. It, it is then. then. Yeah. So things didn't go much better for Miss Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn was a hot mess. It seems like this was just never going to go well. She did marry Henry and they did have Elizabeth. However, Henry, upon receiving word that... Catherine is dead. It's like, ooh, ooh, if I marry somebody now, my kids will definitely be legitimate. Because people could say that this was adultery. They could, like, after I'm dead, they could say that this marriage to Anne was crazy. Because reasons, like, maybe they would say that. I don't know. I started a new church, whatever. Wow. This guy is really in his head. (laughs) Yeah. And so, like, maybe if I get rid of Anne and get another wife, a newer wife, a better wife. That one will count. And then I'll have all the sons. So, I mean, what's he going to do with Anne Boleyn? Just lock her up too? Oh, no. We have to kill her. Thus, it begins. <laughs> we have, Clearly, we have to kill her. Can't do another annulment this soon. So, the marriage lasts about three years. And all of a sudden, these charges start popping up around the castle that she has been having lots of sex with lots of guys. And this is not only bad behavior. And of course. It's treason. (gasps) 
Because if she becomes pregnant with another man's child and that child inherits the throne of England. Treason. Treason. Right. So we need to, we, we need to kill her, obviously. And to make things worse, the final nail in her coffin, which is almost not a metaphor, was a charge of incest and treason against her brother and herself. That's just trumping the charges up. Oh, yeah. And, of course, he was executed as well. She was put in the Tower of London, locked away, and eventually she was beheaded. Now, of course, this marriage was annulled as well because that just doesn't count. And Elizabeth was declared a bastard, as was Mary, when her mother's marriage was annulled. And then very shortly after... Mary's Jane Seymour. The day after Anne's execution, they become betrothed. Well, he just had that lined up, didn't Mm -hmm. And this is when he finally gets the sign. The male heir. Why does he keep going after this? Because Edward is evidently and obviously very sickly from the time he's born. Right. He's like, oh, that one's not going to stick. Which is like just really giving some evidence to Henry VIII had some genetic problem. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, she died, you always hear, in childbirth. But she actually died four weeks later. And people think now from reconstructing the situation from the records we have that what happened was it, a piece of placenta actually was uh, not yeah. Yeah, delivered. Yeah, was a bad yeah. infection. And she died of sepsis. Now, Henry seemed to actually give a shit when she died. She was the only one of his wives to be given a queen's funeral. I mean, she had a son. She had a that son. That makes her worth something. Oh, and her, her tomb says something like, here lies a phoenix from whose ashes will rise the future of England. Or so. It's ridiculous. Lovely. But he actually wore black. He mourned for three months, like formally, and then did not remarry for three years, which is something for him. And then he married the Flemish mayor. Yes. For like a hot minute. Yes. And during his mourning period, he had put on a considerable amount of weight and started showing like severe symptoms of gout and diabetes. And he had a wound on his leg that like festered. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't heal. It was probably from the diabetes. Yeah. And actually when I was reading about Anne of Cleves, I saw a line that's like, said there was body odor and sagging breast. And honest to God, I thought it was about Henry. I thought it was her remark about mm. Henry. <laughs> Apparently it was about her. So he was unhappy with her and sent her back. So she is the lucky one. Because she got sent back. She got sent back. No, thank you. And then comes Catherine Howard. And she is a pretty little lass. She marries Henry when she is 16. And he is 49. All right. All right. Now she is Anne Boleyn's first cousin. So that is also fun. And, of course, a few months in, getting some buyer's remorse. She follows in her cousin's footsteps. Yeah, she does. She is held at the cower, accused and convicted of treason, and beheaded. Now, she had had an affair with a man named Thomas Culpepper, was word on the street. And there actually are surviving love letters. So it was real. But it predated her marriage with King Henry. And, basically, everyone... In charge had penises and all agreed that, oh yeah, definitely treason. She did not disclose her full sexual history to you within 20 days of the marriage. Therefore... Was that the rule? Yep. So he didn't use the like multiply by seven rule? (laughs) He did not, no. And so she was summarily executed. Fun for all. And she's one of the famous ghosts that haunts the Tower of London. Oh, yeah. Anne Boleyn is much more commonly seen and much more popular. Anne Boleyn also haunts like her childhood home on certain holidays and stuff. There's very storied ghost lore. They're haunting everywhere. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And then came Catherine Parr, who was widowed when Henry died. 
There are rumors that she and her later husband that she took as queen regent while they were kind of looking after Elizabeth were very abusive to her. That's like one of the lines of writing and a lot of scholarship. But then there's also the fact that she helped Henry enact the Third Secession Act, which restored Mary and Elizabeth to the line of secession. And Mary was Henry's first daughter, and she would eventually become queen after Edward's death. And she succeeded Lady Jane Grey, who was put into power in a coup and reigned for like nine days, and she had her executed. Yeah, and she's who restored Catholicism for a hot minute. Mary. Yes. Yes, yes burned lots of people. Yes. Now, I said a hot minute. Mm-hmm. Her <laughs> life had been very difficult. She had, you know, been separated from her mother, was not even allowed to attend her funeral. And one of the most interesting repeating episodes that you see with Mary are hysterical pregnancies. She would like stop menstruating and start like, right. Like yeah. gain weight and have a swollen stomach yeah. and people would be like, she's totally pregnant. And then it would just go away. I wonder if they were real or not. They really were hysterical. They may have been. I mean, that is a real thing. That oh happens. no, there were, would have been copious notes if she had any signs of miscarriage. Any, like think oh, about because of the awesome medical knowledge at the time. No, but think about like what I read about her mom. Like every because it would have been the heir. You know, this was something. This was more valuable. And she was married to the king of Spain. You know, this was a big deal. Her children were a very big deal. And then she came to believe that what led this weird condition to keep recurring was her tolerance of heretics in the realm. Oh, yeah. And so this is when we get all bloody Mary. (laughs) Now, Elizabeth was his second daughter, and she did succeed her sister Mary as Queen of England. Now, we all know that Elizabeth was the virgin queen, and she never married, and... Ta-da. No heirs. No heirs. And then, of course, Henry's youngest child. Our male heir, the only. He was very sickly. He ascended to the throne when he was 10 after the death of his father. But this, he still managed to get married to Mary, Queen of Scots. Betrothed. Oh, that is And only for a hot married. minute. Mm. Only for a hot minute. From the records, again, sketchy at best, it seems like he died of TB, although there were rife rumors of poison, etc., but with his death and the death of those children, the line's done. I mean, we know it's not TB. It was the curse. It was the curse. The clearly. curse, giving the monastic lands away. Yes, the monks were exacting their revenge. Now, the evil monks had, you know, wreaked havoc for quite a while. And in the 19th century, there was a disgruntled monk who sought to exact revenge. He was left out of an inheritance after the woman he loved, his heart's desire, his relative... Oh, good. Named Antoinette Corey, married Ferdinand Coburg instead. Now, the bride's father, feeling all warm and fuzzy about this newly married couple, decided to just give them all his money instead of letting the monk have any of the money. Uh-oh. And the monk was infuriated both by the loss of his love and by the loss of his gold. Both in equal measure, I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. And so he placed this curse on this family and their descendants. And so Queen Victoria. I've heard of her. Our favorite queen. She's badass. She really. She married Prince Albert Nakan of Saxe-Coburg. Which would be this line. The Coburgs. And they were cursed. Of course. And so when Queen Victoria began to have children, they began to see the curse show up. <gasps> It's well known that many of the European royal families have hemophilia. Right. 
and of Queen Victoria's descendants, her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, 36 were sufferers or carriers of the disease. Like Alexei. Her descendant married into the Russian royal family. And thus Alexei had hemophilia and had the sailor nannies. Yes. Now, Queen Victoria died blaming her husband's Coburg side of the family. For getting all up, all that curse up in here. All the curse, because she'd grown up hearing about the curse. Mm-hmm. Now we know, we're looking at genetics, that the gene for hemophilia most likely derived either from her, from Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. Or from her father, Edward, the Duke of Kent. Well, there's nothing like blaming people who aren't in charge of things for things. It's a royal tradition. Of course. I mean, look at Henry. So let us go across the pond. What pond? The big one. Oh, the Atlantic? Yeah. Not the biggest one. Eh. And come to the Lecomte family. Why are they over here? That sounds purity French. Well, they are from France. But they're in America. Yes. They're settlers. So, Antoine Lecomte, who was a native of Bacardi, France, settled in Maryland in 1655. And he explored the land, the Great Choptank River, in the late 1650s and settled around a bay that's now known as Lecomte Bay. Now, in that area, there was also the Choptank Indian tribe, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a subtribe of the Algonquins. Um, And they were fishermen. They were pretty pretty peaceful people. But, as we know, (laughs) as one could guess... The peace did not exactly last. Now, there's no definitive history. But that's the best kind of history is the not definitive history, isn't it? Of course. On how the Lecomps and the Chomptonk Indians got on. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, there are written down stories of great-grandchildren telling of how he dispersed the Indians by firing guns of most every size. But there is a tale of how he may have gotten rid of these pesky Indians in a folklore collection from the Dorchester County Library. So this is an old collection. But Antoine Lecomte invited the Chomptonk Indian chief and his sons to dinner to try to make peace. Or so he said. Now after the meal, they all retired to the barn for a smoke. And Antoine Lecomte ended up shooting both the chief <gasps> and his sons in the barn. No! Killing them. Now, some say there was much drinking and the conversation led to land ownership and this led to a heated argument. Some say it was all planned (laughs) and that he murdered them in order to fully acquire the land due to these dastardly deeds. Sorry, if anything so far is going to make a curse, this. This is going to hurt you. They were struck with blindness. His, him or? His family. His, really? A family curse. Now, there's no evidence of any specific encounter or of the curse and family manuscripts dating back to 1819, but it is recorded that Antoine's second son, Moses, went blind in his early 20s due to a, quote, curse of blindness. And Maryland Historical Magazine from 1917 said that he was partially blind at 18 or 19 and totally so at 22 or 23, despite a trip to England for treatment. So I think like the degenerative nature of the condition probably led people to think it was more supernatural. Like, yeah, like there was not a sickness. There wasn't a fever. There wasn't a... Yeah, so it just came upon you as you entered manhood. Oh, yeah. That seems very right? suspicious. Now, this progressive blindness afflicted nine of Moses' children and more than 40 of his descendants. 
Holy cow. Now today, descendants still have difficulty with vision. And you can go on ghost tours that stop at their ancestral home where many spirits are seen in photographs. I'm sure they are. Blind ghost. Just like running into Worst walls. Worst ghost everywhere. ever. No, they just like walk right into you. What is that noise? These cases of blindness in the family are reported at the time. Benjamin Rush. Oh, like signer Rush? Declaration of Independence signer. Doctor? Physician Rush, kind of. Signer Dr. Rush. Did note it in one of his speeches. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other similar cases to this. Around 1814, a small group of British colonists founded a settlement on Tristan da Cunha, which is a group of small islands in the Atlantic Ocean, midway between Africa and South America. And they also had these similar incidents where their descendants began to have this progressive blindness. Did they kill the Indian chief and his son? I wouldn't be surprised. Well, this seems like a rather effective generational curse. Very effective because it was in the genes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Literally. Oh. Literally. So most likely both of these cases of familial curses was something called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic disorder that affects your photoreceptors in your eyes, and so they don't heal appropriately, Mm -hmm. and they eventually kind of die out. Mm -hmm. As for the British colonists on the island, there was a study done on their descendants Mm -hmm. in 1961, and the majority of genes in the gene pool on Tristan were still derived from the 15 original ancestors. And as a consequence of the small population, of the 232 people tested in 1961, four had written in pigmentosa. So this is, this is like Galapagos kind of stuff. Like this is like specialized population, kind of does its own thing over time because it's on an island, sort of. Uh, in a way, in a okay. way. There's no evolution related to it, but it is related to the small population okay. and why you can see it. So it's something called a founder's effect. So a founder's effect occurs when like, you have a small group of migrants that are not genetically representative of a population from where they come from. Right, because it's too small of a population? or Well, they just have some odd, rare okay. genes of some sort. Okay. And when they farm some new colony... This small little founder group can strongly affect the future population's genetic makeup. Okay. Far, far, far into the future. And in humans, where there's a slow reproduction rate, and the population remains small for many generations, it just amplifies the effect. Because no matter how hard you try not to marry your first cousin, you might marry your third cousin. Okay. And those genes are still there. Because it's the only option. (laughs) So it's easy to be a cursed fish in a little pond. Sure. Now, a classic example of Founders Effect are in French Canadians. Your people. Yes, and cool, but these are the ones in Quebec. Okay, not your people. They are my where I'm descended from, on my mom's side. So over 150 years of French colonization between 1608 and 1760, an estimated 8,500 pioneers married and left at least one descendant on the territory. In 1760, the British took over, and they kicked a bunch of the French out Mm -hmm. for being Catholic, and (sighs) that's where you get Cajuns from. Yay, Cajun seeds. 
Cajun seeds. Now in Quebec, the founders in question were mainly from Perche, beginning with Robert Gifford's first settlers in 1634, whom nearly all of the French Canadians in Quebec are descended from in some way. That's fun. Almost everybody can trace back to them. The Perche settlers provided this baseline population of Quebec. Now, not all of these weird diseases and disorders within the French Canadians can be traced to the settlers from Perche, but since they were the early founders, their genes are the most pervasive and most likely to meet up again. Mm -hmm. Now, to date, 19 of the 21 hereditary diseases with known origins have been traced to the Perche founders. With some Good found- stock. Yeah. Good with some st- founders, 34 of the 48 contributing to more than one disease. So were they like forcibly removed from France? No, they were fur traders and fishermen. So you can just list off this bevy of rare disorders that are seen in disproportionate numbers in French Canadians in this region, including different types of ataxias. What is ataxia? Um, ner- like a nerve disorder, okay. uh, Tay-Sachs, also things like Lee's syndrome, pseudovitamin D deficiency, rickets, uh, myotonic dystrophy, all sorts of terrible things. Some of these diseases are found in the Acadians of South Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them are the same genetic source, such as in like Usher's syndrome, um, which is like a, a blindness and deafness that's progressively worsening. Uh, that my dad's best friend has. And oddly, some of them are actually separate genetic mutations. What? How? Genetic mutations. Hey, <laughs> and mutations. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So this was really well known early on. And as epidemiology was getting its feet under. Oh, come its on. Feet as under, eugenics was yeah. getting its feet under. <laughs> People were starting to look for the different diseases that were coming about. And now in the 19th century, you had this one disease that came up. Remember, there's all these like neurological things. Right. So this new one is called the Jumping Frenchman of Maine. Oh my God. This is that, this is that Captain America villain. Oh, uh, the leaper. Yes. Yes. So this was first described in the 19th century logging communities. And it was characterized by a, quote, complex startle reactions like jumping, raising the arms, shouting, hitting, or repeating sentences. All of these loggers were French-Canadian, mostly from around Quebec City. (laughs) This did not help their social standing. And based on family histories, they thought this was an autosomal dominant disorder, meaning if your dad had it or your mom had it, you're going to have it no matter what. Okay. So is it it like Tourette's? Well, (laughs) as they actually began to study it, they realized it wasn't a genetic disorder at all. No, it wasn't. It was just a conditioned response to living in the lumber camps. No, shut up. We don't always get it right, folks. Okay. It's not always right. But we get it right okay, eventually. What were, what were the symptoms? He was like, jump and startled easily, and they'd repeat sentences. The jumping Frenchman. No, it's not a thing. And my mom always told me that I learned to whisper in a sawmill. I didn't know it was a genetic condition. I think you have that genetic condition. (laughs) So you can also see other founders' effects in like Ashkenazi Jews that have a high rate of autosomal recessive disorders. So meaning both parents have to have it for Mm -hmm. you to get it. Um, So like Gaucher's disease, kind of a disease, and also Tay-Sachs disease. Right. There's also a Celtic curse. Uh, There are many. We just talked about them. But this one 
is in people of Irish descent. And mm-hmm. we've, they've known for a while what it is. And it's hemochromatosis. What is that? It's a buildup of extra iron in your body. Ooh, what's that do? It cause a lot of problems okay. if you don't treat it. And they actually recently sequenced genomes of a woman farmer from 5,200 years ago. His remains were from near Belfast. And three men who lived on Ratlin Island during the Bronze Age about 4,000 years ago. And figured out that the gene appeared somewhere in that time period. Dude, that's old. So it's between four and 5,000 years old. And hemochromatosis is seen in other populations, but there's a very high predominance in people of Celtic origin. It's really interesting. The genetic research component of that is so interesting. Like the mm-hmm. being able to date it. I don't know. It fascinates me. <laughs> so in that case, it was not a supernatural Native American curse placed on a Frenchman for vengeance. No, it's just bad genes. Yeah, I'll do it every time. Yeah, that's that with the Korbergs, Queen Victoria, the royal families, and also those jumping French Canadians. <laughs> but let's get back to the to the magic of a curse. Let's get back to the that. ghosties. The ghosties, the supernatural element of it. There is one family that I came across in my research that does have a hell of a supernatural tale to go along with their supernaturally bad luck. Really? There's a family that has two of the best death omens. Two? They have two omens? They have two. When you're royalty, you get the best. I think they just really screwed up somewhere in the past. Yeah. So, the Habsburg family... Perhaps you've heard of them. Maybe. They were around forever. Yeah. Forever. They were the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire. Which was neither holy or Roman. Or an empire. <laughs> Depends on your definition. I mean, who's who's matching up? I mean. Most historians say it was not. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying we're not in a measuring contest here, okay, Napoleon? Oh, but we are. And I went, mine is bigger. They were haunted by the Turnfalcon. What's that? A death omen that takes the form of a raven. Ravens are just going to keep popping up. They do. They're going to do that. And the White Lady. And they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Or are they? No, they're not. Okay. <laughs> Wait. Be the same spirit energy that just manifests differently before people. Yeah. If we're I mean, going like, ghosty. Are we going full ghosty? Yeah. It can be the same one. Okay, so, so one day he wants to be black raven, one day he wants to be white lady. I mean, whatever. It's like we're whatever. Not, we're not judging here. No, it's just like I feel pretty. <laughs> I feel like eating someone's eyeballs out. You whatever. know, we all have those days. We do. So legend has it that the origin of the Turnfalcon dates back to the 11th century when Count von Altenberg was hunting in the forest and a kettle. Kettle? A kettle of vultures. Like there's a, a large kettle filled with vultures. No, that's what you call vultures in flight. Oh, good. So a kettle of vultures attacks him and they're driving him to a cliff. And his, his demise is imminent. And lo, from the heavens on high, descends a conspiracy of ravens. To save him? From the kettle of vultures. Oh, yes, definitely. And they drive them off. And to show his gratitude to his new raven friends, he built Hobbitsburg, or Habsburg, which means vulture tower. Huh. 
and he allowed the ravens to roost there. And he kept, it was a lookout tower for the ravens. They could come, he would feed them. Everyone's keeping raven. Well, he really did, apparently. (laughs) Or it was made up around the same time and embraced with equal love and fervor. Now, he went on being good friends with his birds, and this was all going very well until a few generations went by and things between the birds and the Hopsbergs worsened. Relations became tense. What do they do? Well, when Arch Abbot Werner and his brother Rodbot came into possession of this tower, they decided to add on and make it into a castle for Fonzies. And the ravens lost their home. Oh, I'm sure they were happy about that. Oh, yeah. They stopped feeding them, stopped taking care of them, stopped being friends. And so the ravens became violent and started attacking the Habsburgs. And so they naturally put them to death. They began executing the ravens. And 200 years later, all of the ravens had been driven out of Schloss Habsburg. And they began appearing only to herald tragedy. Just to remind them. <laughs> you fucked up. And so it's one of these crazy conspiracy ravens. Right. That they were buddies. Now they're just going to come to exact their revenge. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? The white lady. Now, she, her origins are unknown. It's not known when she started making her appearances. She is described as a court lady who never did anything to anyone. She just shows up. She's kind of banshee-like. She's kind of got that feel to her. She's a female spirit who comes to tell them when they're going to die. Death omen. And she just appears as like a very finely dressed woman who's kind of see-through and totally white head to toe. So there are reports of the ravens appearing before tragedy going back to at least 1785. It's the one I found the oldest. Okay. And that involves Marie Antoinette. We're hitting all the good royals. Oh, yeah. She was a descendant of the Habsburgs. And she married Louis the 16th of France while being French and doing things. She was out in her pretend garden. Her hamlet? Yeah. That's so weird. It's weird. It was a it was a whole hamlet. It was a it was a pretend farm. It was It a, was it was no. Hamlet was not the name of the pig on the farm. It was a whole village. It just, was a, just, just a little just, <laughs> She needed to go out and get her bell on. She'd be like little town. <laughs> And so she was out there, she was drinking some milk, and a large gray raven, as the reports have it, appeared. It came and sat in the folds of her dress, and it frightened her so that she fainted, because she knew what this meant, this old Habsburg omen. And everyone in her court knew what it meant, and they all stood there, afraid to throw stones at the raven and scare it away. And we all know what happened to Marie Antoinette. Yes, yes. She was summarily beheaded yes by the french revolution and in drawings from the time there are ravens perched atop the gallows yes as they often are well to be fair they're carrion birds yes not that bizarre they're almost always depicted on top of guillotines and on top of gallows gallows and things things. but i mean like it's if you're a raven that's just smart just good planning just waiting let them eat carrion that is so bad (laughs) Now, in 1790, when Francis I was still just Archduke Francis, he was patiently awaiting the birth of his first child, and his father was ailing, and he was caring for him. And on the week of February 18th, he began seeing the White Lady. Oh, no. Stalking around the castle. 
and he knew that something terrible was about to happen. His wife, Elizabeth Württemberg, who was the Archduchess of Austria, gave birth to a daughter, but sadly she died during childbirth. After the White Lady appeared? But the White Lady wasn't done. Really? The next day, his father, the Emperor, Joseph II, also died. White Lady was busy. White Lady, stop! (laughs) But Joseph was a very tragic figure in his own right. Things had not gone well for him. He was a very liberal and progressive ruler and had tried to institute a ton of reforms and really modernize his empire. Everyone knows the Holy Roman Empire was very progressive. Right? Okay, well, when he became ill, he saw that his servants and his courtiers and things were not going to carry out his orders. They were just not implementing his reforms. They were just letting it go stale. He became very discouraged and very disheartened. And a month before his death, he formally withdrew all his reforms. He was like, you know what? Never mind. He just gave up. He just gave up. His title did not even go to his son. It went to his brother. But by his own request, on his tomb, it is etched in stone. Here lies Joseph II, who failed all he undertook. Emo much? Oh my God. It's positively Southern. Did he see the white lady? His son did. In regard to him, right? Right. So there's that tragedy, that little moment of tragedy in February of 1790. This is double the fun. Then we come to Maria Teresa of Naples and Sicily, who was the wife of Francis II. She was a second wife. And in 1807, the white lady began making appearances. She'd been nervous about this year of her life for quite a while because as a child in Sicily, she'd gone to see an old gypsy fortune teller who had told her that she would die at the age of 34. You're going to die, white lady. And she'd been very nervous about it, but she'd survived several illnesses that year, and people thought she had really rallied. Despite the kingdom being under threat and her having been moved while she was ill, she was doing much better. The week before her death, she and a countess, Countess Venber, and her daughter, Marie-Louise, who's around 15 at the time, all saw the lady in white. Uh Uh-oh. She must have freaked out. She did give birth to her 12th child. I'd like to remind you, she was 34. I can't even make that math work. She became ill like a week before and then gave birth to her daughter during that illness just two days before her death. And then her daughter went on to marry Napoleon. Told you he'd come up. I always do. Around 1811, we all know, or maybe we don't all know. So Napoleon had married for love. Really? Before, yes, before he was the emperor, he had married Josephine. Of course. Josephine. How can we forget those love letters? Really, they're good. They're like as good as Abigail Adams and John Adams' love letters. But anyway, he'd married her. She was a widow, though, and she had already had two children. She was older than he was, and he knew she was probably not going to bear him an heir. And so they divorced amicably, and he decided he should marry a proper royal and married this Habsburg. But he kept in contact with Josephine. It was really weird, you know? He just kept it on the side. Yeah, it's kind of weird. However, in around 1811, Marie-Louise saw a raven. And it so terrified her, knowing what it meant, that she fainted. Lots of swooning at this phase of the raven prophecy. Fulfillment. And she had a vision in her faint. That's impressive. Right? Of Napoleon. And he was galloping on a large white horse through an open field. And then suddenly... Was he galloping toward Russia? Oh, unfortunately, 
he is lying on the ground next to the horse and his sword is broken. And she's like, everything is ending. I know what this means. And she actually has a painting of her vision done. Really? Yeah. And she believes that this heralds his defeats in Moscow and uh, Waterloo. And when he's exiled, she will not grant him a divorce, but she will not go with him. She's like, I hope you understand. I hope we can still be friends, but I'm not giving you a goddamn divorce. Like, I love it so much. Nice. Nice. But she did not want her son to be disinherited. Uh, that's a good reason. Yeah. So, so they, what, ha- what happens to Napoleon II? Um, he, I mean, I, I knew Napoleon III, like, hangs out with the Jersey Devil. Right. Well, they're actually, that's not, not Napoleon II's son. It's just, I know. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> the time when line up. Right. Um, Napoleon II actually died when he was 21 of tuberculosis. I wonder if he saw the white lady. I bet he did. Or a raven. I'm pretty, yeah, like, I mean, I could have just said he did, and everyone would have been like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what else were the Habsburgs up to? Okay, so Ferdinand the Good, or Ferdinand the Idiot, depending on which of the various states of the empire you ask. What side of the story are you on? Was one of the uh, Holy Roman emperors for a minute, and he was eventually declared incompetent to rule. Now, he suffered from all manner of maladies. He had epilepsy, he had hydrocephalus, he had neurological problems, a speech impediment, etc. Now, despite all of this, he did keep a very cogent and well-written diary. So it seems like it wasn't an intellectual incapacity. It was more of a neurological issue. And physicians in court had written before he ever married, we don't think he's going to be able to consummate his marriage. When he probably had some serious neurological disorder. Like, he was probably born with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, when he tried to consummate his marriage, he had five seizures. And now the good kind. New. <laughs> Knowing that there would be no heir, he passed the crown to his nephew. It was also like a condition of a revolution. When he saw troops outside of the castle. Why are they doing that? No, he literally said, what are they doing? And he's like, they're making a revolution. And he's like, but are they allowed to do that? Not exactly. It's like one of his most well-known quotes is he asked for apricot dumplings one day and they're like, apricots are out of season. He's like, I am the Holy Roman Emperor and I want apricots. We've all had those days. Yeah. And so he does, he's going to give up his title to Franz Joseph, the like the patriarch, the guy. And he does so at Omelets in Czech Republic. And at the time, the skies are blackened with conspiracies of ravens. So no good shit is coming. Now, it's also said that before Maximilian I of Mexico left to go be Maximilian I of Mexico in 1867, he and his wife, Charlotte, were having one last walk around Miramar, their estate, and a bird actually comes and sits on the train of Charlotte's dress. Well, the raven. To be fair. Now, things do not go well for Maximilian in Mexico. So there was a bit of a revolution, and they kind of decided that they didn't want some Austrian dude being in charge of them, and then maybe he was, like, shot by a firing squad. Famous Manet painting of that. He gave his executioners some gold and was like, please don't shoot my face. Yes, yes. It's amazing. All these great apocryphal stories. I love them. Well, I've seen pictures of him dead, and they really didn't shoot him in the face. To be fair. <laughs> to be fair. I could see him doing that. For his last meal, did he ask for apricot? 
Yes, yes, definitely. Do you have those little empanadas? They're not dumplings, but they'll do. And his last words, which are almost certainly apocryphal, are, I forgive everyone, and I ask everyone to forgive me. May my blood, which is about to be shed, be for the good of the country. Viva Mexico. Viva la independencia. Yeah, he didn't say that. Also, while this was occurring in Mexico, the white lady appeared in Vienna to the rest of his family. And they were like, oh no, something is terribly wrong. And as far as Charlotte, she did not die at this time. However, she returned to live out her life in a state of paranoid delusion. There are several accounts that say that she never admitted that Maximilian had died. I wonder if she saw the white lady. (laughs) Every day at noon for tea. Talk to him. Like, it seems like she just absolutely lost it. Like, it really did affect her profoundly. I would imagine that would be pretty um, traumatizing. And then there was the daughter of Archduke Albert, Matilda of Austria, who was leaving for the opera on the day that a white lady had been seen, and she was smoking a cigarette. It's very unladylike. Right, and she knew her father would agree with you about that, and so she hid the cigarette behind her when her father walked close and her gown was very flammable and it caught on fire and burned her to death in front of her entire family. Wow. So you remember how the ravens appeared when Franz Joseph took the crown, took the title? The ravens keep appearing. Right. Well, he had one son named Rudolph. That keeps happening too. And Rudolph had a very tragic end. I will now tell you the story of the Marilyn affair. So Rudolph owned a hunting lodge called Mayerling. And one of the most striking pieces of decor at said hunting lodge was a very Gaston display of ravens. Was it manly? It was taxidermied ravens. They were positioned so they looked like they were descending upon a carcass. And that was in his house. (laughs) He was good at interior decorating. Yes. Now he'd shot the ravens himself, apparently not afraid of them, on one of his hunting trips. And he married Princess Stephanie of Bavaria. And they did not care for each other so much. But then things came to a head when he met the lovely, lovely Maria. This account was published in 1899. So about 10 years after this actually happened. is when the real story was starting to leak out. In 1899 occurred at Meierling, just out of Vienna, a mysterious and awful tragedy. Prince Rudolph. The idol of the nation, the heir and only son of Francis Joseph, lay dead. What tragedy has struck? It was all a vague mystery. Duel, murder, suicide was on every tongue. The court newspapers simply said his royal highness had died suddenly from a rupture of an aneurysm. Of the heart. The wires flashed the same story to all parts of the civilized world. So meager was the announcement. Both Mayerling and the palace, inaccessible, Viennese believed nothing save that Rudolph was dead. So importunate did they become for details that it was thought unwise to conceal that the prince had committed suicide. But why? The mystery deepened. Though all the Mayerling servants had been sworn to secrecy, it leaked out on the fatal night a woman had been with him. (gasps) And she too had come to a violent death. No. Was it the princess? (laughs) She killed both of them. Rudolph had the misfortune to marry Stephanie, daughter of Leopold II of Belgium, a woman of narrow mind with no culture, no beauty, and of a shrewish, jealous temper. See? 
It was a marriage of policy, not of love. Stephanie, elated by her high position and marital rights, gave way to vulgar jealousy, even before she had claws. She watched, followed, questioned her princely husband, descending to the lowest sort of espionage, even to questioning the servants, searching the pockets, and opening letters. Naturally, Rudolph was furious. When she tracked him to Maryland and falsely accused him of going there to receive his fair friends, the hope of reconciliation or peace passed forever. Now, in 1888, there was a Polish ball given to Vienna, at which the emperor requested the crown prince be present, and there he met Marie Vetsera, a beautiful Greek girl. The other woman? Mm-hmm. And for the first time in his life, he fell violently in love. Violently? Mm, yeah. Fantastic. Singularly enough, years before, the emperor had much admired the girl's mother, and there had been a court scandal, all of which had been forgotten. A cousin of Rudolph's, who had been brought up by, his, by the empress, had once hoped to be his bride, saw a chance for revenge for her disappointment by fostering a liking of the prince for the fair Greek girl. For the first time, Stephanie had a real rival. The cousin took special care that she should know it. Her anger knew no bounds. Forgetting her sex and her rank, she heaped vulgar reproaches upon Rudolph. You forget your sex and rank all, all the, time. the time. And applied such epithets to Marie Vetsera that the prince, in return, gave way to hot resentment and vowed that he was through with her and he would never forgive her. Harsh words for a violently in love man. Oh, this is to the this is to his wife. I guess that's why he's violently in love. With not her. Hmm. Damn. Yeah. So wretched and infatuated with love, Rudolph, with no thought of his princely rank nor his duties, wrote the Pope a private letter, begging him to annul his marriage with Stephanie, and to persuade the Emperor to allow him to renounce his right to secession and retire to private life. I'm sure the Pope loved that. Um, yeah, he's not going to go for this. So he sent the letter to Franz Joseph. Oh, oh, he told on him. He tattled. He totally did. (laughs) A Pope tattled. (laughs) So they fight and Franz is like, no, you may not stop it. Just below your rank. You're going to, you are going to be the king whether you like it or not, young man. (laughs) I don't want to be the king. That's why you can write stuff with my friends. So he sent a carriage to pick Marie Vetsera up at a flower shop after this. And the driver would know her because she would be carrying a bunch of violets. I mean, come on. The coach brings her to Mayerling. What passed between the pair can, of course, never be known. By notes, however, written by Marie Vetsera to her mother and her sister, it is plain that he told her of the insurmountable barrier between them and of his promise to his father to separate from her forever. Marie had a foreboding that she was to be separated from Rudolph, which seemed worse than death. At no time had she the hope, the confidence, and the appeal to Pope Leo that Rudolph had. She carried strychnine about her person, so that if the awful fate were pronounced, she might end her desolation and her misery at once. In the temporary absence of the prince, she swallowed it. Rudolph, already crushed by the trying interview with his father, had been crazed at seeing the girl he loved so passionately dying before his eyes and dying in his own private apartments. His honor compromised, his life ruined, with no hope for future. One should be slow to censure if he put a bullet through his own brain. Now, the crown prince was also 
related by marriage to the Cobergs. Cursey curse curse. Double triple curse. I mean, all the shit these royal people did to like the people that lived in their lands, sure. <laughs> You're probably cursed. Fine. So people feel that the big conspiracy of ravens he killed, and then like having the audacity to mount them. Oh, like triple dipple oh. cursed him. Oh, like oh, he's like so cursed. There was no way. There was no way he was making it to four. But there were other stories. This you'll notice kind of paints him in a glowy light. Like, oh, the tragedy. Oh, the romance. Oh no, poor Rudolph. There were other rumors. So apparently, in 1918, the keeper of the Imperial Archives found a sealed satchel belonging to Rudolph. Among other things, it contained an onyx ashtray. With these words written in violet ink. Revolver is better, not poison. Revolver is surer. It was in the handwriting of the pretty young noblewoman of whose oriental blood led her into a madcap adventure with horrible death. At the end, death in a picturesque hunting lodge, which is now a convent. And the room where the couple was found in their last embrace is now a chapel. Oh, well, isn't that perfect? Shut the fuck up. Like, supposedly she wrote a revolver letter in purple ink when she was carrying purple flat like come who wrote this bonus ripper i don't know it's bad no there were also rumors that this rumor of the prince in the velvet mask went around and they were like he basically had his face slashed like joker that's not what they said because they didn't know who joker was so like glasgow smile yeah apparently and he had to, his face had to be concealed in a velvet mask so that he would not horrify people when he was removed from Maryland, which is a weird one. It was supposedly like two competing suitors that came and killed them in this story. And then there's another story, which was circulated by a French nobleman, Beren Lafrui, who said that Marie had mutilated him when she found out that he would not be marrying her. Really? What do you mean? Like, like did the smile thing? No, no, no. She saw his nakedness and took it. <gasps> no. <laughs> and so, you know, he freaked out when she did that, as one would, and strangled her. And then was so horrified by the entire thing that he shot himself. Now, I don't know where that one came from. Years later, Stephanie mysteriously, somehow, managed to produce this new note. This is his wife that was like, everything was my fault. Nothing is your fault. I love you very much. Please take care of our children, you sainted mother figure. Convenient. Yeah, and he, she adds, like, Ugh, he never loved Marie Vetsara. She was but one of many, though I do believe she loved him. He was just a terrible man, and he hated women. Yeah, that's very convenient. She retconned that hard. Nice. And there's also a tale that came out from Marie's side of the story, because she was... She was promptly, like, taken out of the country. Like, her body was removed to another country because it was such a scandal, as you can imagine. But her family said that the Habsburgs would not permit them to put her in a coffin to remove her because they didn't want anyone seeing two coffins coming out. Oh, wow. So they weakened it. Bernie's that shit. No. Yeah. Like, sat her up in a carriage? Yes. And rode her off? Between her two uncles. (gasps) Oh, no. (laughs) Which I find very fascinating and more credible than any of this other stuff. And, you know, as time went on, there was much more writing like this. So as far as his aides and servants knew, Rudolph had taken Marie to Meyerling, ostensibly, for an evening of pleasure. The blood-red roses he always brought for her were scattered throughout the suite in profusion, 
freshly killed game was turning on the spits in the kitchen. Champagne was ice, and the appurtenances of royal lovemaking were everywhere in evidence. Oh my god, no. With two ear-shattering shots from a heavy, ancient musket resounded in the lodge, the attendants rushed into the bedroom to find the slim, beautiful baroness and her lover side by side in death. Now that is getting so. So the story is getting like more and more bodice ripper oh, as time goes on. Yes, and people get a hold of it. I mean, it is great fodder. Great fodder. While historians have differed in the circumstances of the tragedy, they have all been unanimous, even ecstatic, in the praise of Maria Vetsera's beauty. Well, at least she got one thing going for her. So after the demise of Prince Rudolf, Archduke of the Habsburg Empire. And the beautiful Marie Vetsera, the tragedy continued. There was the disappearance of Archduke John, or Johann, who went sailing and did not come back. Did cannibals get him? Maybe. We're not sure. He might have gone native. We don't know. Oh, that's the Rockefeller. Never that's, mind. The, that's a different dynasty. Different episode. Yes. And he disappeared with his wife while sailing around the Cape of Good Hope in July of 1890. Now, what finally convinced the family that he had not gone walkabout was the appearance of the white lady, at which point they finally accepted that he had died at sea. And then there was poor Duchess d'Alencon, Sophie Charlotte of Bavaria, and she died in a very grisly manner. She picked apart by ravens? No, but they did see the raven, the turnfalcon. Of course. Before her death. And she died in Paris in 1897, and she was the sister of Empress Elizabeth, Cece, and she refused a ton of marriage proposals. The one she did accept was interesting because they never got married. Who was it? Well, it was Ludwig II of Bavaria, who was, and I'm quoting here, a renowned homosexual. Renowned? I know. Sounds like a good thing. Like, I know. Like he was the best homosexual we know. I think so. Quite a fop. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> you two would be great friends, I'm sure. But she fell in love with her bridal photographer? That took her portraits before she was going to walk down the aisle, and that was quite a scandal. Of course, this is gossip I'm repeating, but that's what I'm here for. She actually died in a charity bazaar when a fire broke out. Oh, that white lady started it. (laughs) Probably. And she refused to be rescued until all of the girls that had been helping at the charity bazaar were rescued. Oh, well, that's nice. I wonder if that's real. Well, she was seen inside and not rescued for whatever reason. But her body had to be identified. Who was like, yeah, those gold fillings look kind of familiar. It's never good when they have to call the dentist in. Ever. For anything. No. Kind of culmination of all of this curse lore really kind of sits with Cece to me. She's a very interesting figure. Who's Cece? Cece is the mother of Rudolph, who was married to Franz Joseph. So she's the Empress. She is the Empress Elizabeth. Empress Cece. Well, she's Elizabeth. But everyone Fine. calls her Cece. It's more fun. And by the way, Chanel did a short film with Pharrell called Reincarnation about Cece. It was kind of kind of fun. Pharrell sings. Sounds happy. I know. Tell me the happy story. <laughs> okay. Now, she'd sort of been dogged by the white lady and the turnfalcon. Oh, she's got both. That's not good. Mm-mm. This really gets kicked off around March of 1898. It's the 44th anniversary of her marriage to Franz Joseph. And there's a guard in front of the chapel where the couple was wed. 
and he sees this woman walking past him like he's not there and won't listen when he says stop. And he goes and he tries to stop her before she walks into the chapel. And she just turns and walks back the other way and then disappears. The white lady? It's the white lady. Creepy. On their anniversary at the chapel where they were married. Then about an hour later, she's seen at Schoenburn, the home. Now, in early September of 1898... Elizabeth is traveling. She did a lot of traveling. Franz Joseph had had pretty widely known and acknowledged affairs with multiple women, and she was horrified and ashamed and just didn't like all the attention. So she took to traveling the continent incognita. And so she might pop up anywhere from time to time. Oh, fun. Using different names and trying to be low profile. Maybe she was the white lady. (laughs) Hell of a gig. She's staying in Switzerland, and she reports that she's sitting on the balcony at her, in this grand hotel, and she looks down, and there's this woman standing there staring at her menacingly on the ground below who, like, won't break eye contact with her. And it freaks her out, and she calls the guards, and they rush in, and when they do, the woman's gone. And then a day or two later, she goes out to sit on her balcony and enjoy the night air and do whatever it is that Cece does. And the white lady walks out of her room and just sits down beside her. Sits by her? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Just like in the chair opposite. No, no. That's creepy. And so she calls the guards again, and when they get there, the lady is gone. So she's seeing the white lady. Things are not going well for her. And then, at the same resort, she goes outside, goes for her morning walk, and happens across Mr. Baker, who is this Englishman, also staying at the resort. And he's reading a book. And she sits down beside him and takes out some fruit from a basket she was carrying. It's a peach. And she goes to slice it in half and hand half to Mr. Baker. And as she does, a giant raven swoops out of the sky, knocks the fruit from her hand, and its wing even brushes her forehead. Mr. Baker reports. Ravens are so mean. Yeah, they are. I bet they recognize her face. Because she's the white lady? Because ravens recognize faces. Oh, that's true. Maybe the ravens were passing down to their children to curse the shit out of the Habsburgs. If anybody could do it, it would be the ravens. Because as we have shown on the ravens episode, ravens can do that. (laughs) They can also bury a body. Not a good enemy to have, these ravens. But Mr. Baker was horrified because he knew about the turn falcon. And he was like, you know what this means? And she was like, none of this matters to me for, because I have already been dead for 10 years. And she's speaking about the death of Rudolph, her oh, son. Sad. So she kind of acknowledges it and is like, uh, what do I give a shit about? But two days later, she is boarding a ship, a disgruntled anarchist. God damn it. It's the time for that. Luigi Luchon rushes out and stabs her in the heart with this sharpened needle file, which is basically like a stiletto. And it only makes this tiny spot of blood, so like people don't immediately realize what's happened. And she you know, eventually collapses, and they realize that he's stabbed her and killed her. Right there, she's, she dies. Wow. So she had plenty of omens. She should have been looking out for those anarchists. Well, they she had a security detail that went with her everywhere. It was just like this freak thing. They were pulling mm. up the gangplank and it was like this one second that she was alone and like not surrounded. And she wasn't even Luigi's first choice. He was there to murder the Duke of Orléans. 
and he left town a little early. And so he was settling for Cece. Terrible luck. The Ravens told him. Probably. They were probably in cahoots. Cacaws. So now this is not the only run-in with these omens and anarchists that the Habsburgs have. No, they're just like, they're swimming in ravens and anarchists. Have you heard of Franz Ferdinand? The band? No, you are terrible. You were just like Google. You know when you put Franz Ferdinand in, that's the first result. They're it's, pretty good. It's not the Archduke right. that started a world war. No, no. He didn't start the world war. He didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. Is that what you're telling me? Well, that's true. <laughs> so what I didn't know about Franz Ferdinand is that he married against the wishes of Franz Joseph, from whom he was to inherit the crown. Franz Ferdinand was not... Franz Joseph's son, because that was Rudolph, and he is dead, along with his lover, in a very mysterious set of circumstances. So he's the nephew, and they have a very contentious relationship. Franz fell in love with Sophie, who was not as royal as they would have liked. Noble, yes, but not royal. Noblish. And so they had to agree, in order for him to gain permission to marry this woman who is not supposedly good enough for him... And in order for him to inherit the title of emperor of all the not-Russias, he had to agree to a morgantic marriage. What's that mean? It means it's really shitty. It is a marriage in which their children will not be heirs, and she is banned from sitting with him in carriages, sitting in the royal box at formal state functions. She has to stand away from him. Basically, she is a church-sanctioned mistress for all intents and purposes as far as royalty goes. So when they have their morgantic marriage, what you think shows up? The white lady. Knew all the ravens. All the ravens. All the ravens. The skies are darkened with conspiracies of turnfalcons, the likes of which the Habsburgs have never seen or just haven't seen since Franz got his crown. Franz Joseph got his crown from Ferdinand. It's not a good sign. Not a good sign. And then... Legend has it, and this is legend, that on the day before Franz Ferdinand makes his trip to Sarajevo to see about this this business of revolution that is bubbling there. Are they allowed to do that? They said yes. Sophie is out motoring in her car in Vienna while Franz is in another city planning his trip. And she sees a crowd of people standing in front of a church looking up. And she tells her driver to go see what everyone's looking at, which is always what you should do. And when she gets there, she sees this just crowd of Hitchcock casting sheet ravens. So what does she do? Well, she runs, motors, somehow gets to Franz Ferdinand and is like, you cannot go to Sarajevo. And he's like, I have to go. And besides, I have a bulletproof vest. Nothing will happen to me. I'm good. I am good. And we all know how that turns out. One bomb and two bullets later, we have a world war. Hooray. Thanks, Ravens. Well, they do come back. Really? For the death of Franz Joseph a few years later. No. And the true debatable end of the empire. So, we've gone through a lot of different types of family curses in today's episode. We started all the way back with the original sin and the mark of Cain and the curse of Ham. We've gone through genetic and supernatural curses, curses on royal families. 
But we began this episode with Miss Winchester. Right. And it would have been really nice if she had been cursed because there would have been a handy little, like, neat explanation. You know, like, oh, well, clearly, you know, when you make a weapon of a death and send it out into the world, you get got. That would have been so fulfilling. Well. Well. There was another guy in Connecticut. Another one? Working on a new armament. Smith? Nope. Wesson? Well, they were there, Mr. Samuel Colt. (gasps) Do you know what they say about Samuel Colt? What's that? They say that God created man and Sam Colt made them equal. Oh, no. You know what else they say about the Colt revolver? What? It's the gun that won the West. I think we've been over this. (laughs) Just guns. It is. Just guns. Those really are like the two. Yeah. That kind of get the name, and it goes back and forth. And actually, I was looking through it in vintage advertisements. They're even like the gun that helps win the West. You know, like they don't they don't say the gun, the only one. It's like they know. <laughs> so Samuel Colt loved him some guns. Yes, this is true. He loves some explosions. Yes. So from the time he was a boy, he'd been kind of obsessed with wreaking havoc upon the world in one way or another. Like when he was 14 or so, he put on this 4th of July exhibition where he blew up a boat in a lake. That was kind of fun. He patented his first revolver when he was 18 years old. The family stories about him as a boy or him sitting under trees taking apart guns. Like he was really a fan. He liked guns. This was not just a business opportunity no. for Sam. Like he it was. Loved though. Winchester was like, oh, look, a nice business opportunity. And Sam was like, I wonder if one day they'll pay me to do this. So other than having some classic sociopathic tendencies when he was young, he did become a very, very successful businessman with the Colt revolver and sold his first revolver to the U.S. government on January 4th of 1847. Now, he had no problem arming any side of the conflict, and he made tons of money doing it. And fittingly, he died of what is considered, especially at the time, the disease or curse of greed and gluttony. He died of gout at 48 years old. That's not old. But. That doesn't make a curse. One death does not make a curse. No, no, no. Now let's go to a broadsheet from 1841. Now, this is to be sung to come, Christian people, by the way. I'm not familiar. Good people all, I pray, give ear. My word concern ye much. I will repeat a tragedy. You never heard of such. Want to bet? Now, on September 26th of 1841, aboard the cargo ship, the Kalamazoo, a long, oblong box was found. And when they cracked it open, it released a foul stench and revealed a dismembered body. To make it even worse, the body was hogtied and wearing only, only a bloodstained shirt. Now, the body was found to be a printer, Samuel Adams. Wait. Different one. Okay. Now, Samuel Colt's brother, John C. Colt, was a starving writer and failed businessman. He had written an accounting book and hired Sam Adams to publish it. But Sam thought Colt was probably trying to pull one over on him and cheating Adams out of would turn out to be a cool $15.35. Wait, this is over 15 bucks and 30 Inflation, cents. inflation. Mm-hmm. This vexed the man unto the heart. He was of wrath so fell. 
at finding no hole in his bill, he picked two in his skull. Now, Adams went to confront Colt at Colt's office on Chambers and Broadway. Now, according to Colt's testimony, a heated argument began, and Adams punched Colt in the face, gave him a bloody nose, and then slammed him against the wall, trying to choke him with his own cravat. Not his cravat! This is so dangerous. I know. Fashionable and dangerous. It's like the man's corset. (laughs) Is it? No. So Colt then says that in self-defense, he grabbed a nearby hammer and... um, Beat the shit out of his head? Found some more holes. (laughs) Oh, savage man for blood did thirst and with blows so violent. Out of his head, brains did gush. Down fell, he all silent. Well, that's that's colorful. Now, Colt tried to clean up the evidence of the crime. He wiped up all the blood, and his neighbor kept coming up and knocking on the door, asking if everything was okay, and so he had to do something. So, according to reports, he took a box, a box which his accounting books were previously in. That they were fighting over. Yes. Cute. He hog-timed Adam's corpse, kind of put it up on a chair in a upright position, and kind of used all of his strength and weight to push him into the small book box. And he, quote, forced the stiffening corpse to form the shape of the container. And he heard the bones crack as he was pushing it in. He then took the box and shipped it to a fake address. In New Orleans. Well, where else would you ship a body like that? For blood will always leave a stain, whatever he may think. And to completely hide the same, he'd cover all with ink. So, so he covered the blood stains in his apartment with printer's ink. Well, of course. I feel like he's trying like, to make this a story. Like, I feel like he's trying to make it a good story well, as he's doing it. Thanks. <laughs> he was a writer. Of accounting books. So after Adams went missing, Colt's landlord alerted the authorities that, that he had last seen Adams enter Colt's home. So in the home, they found a hatchet, some strange splatters on the wall. They then hunted the box down and discovered the terrible contents. So Colt was arrested, and he confessed. Oh, but, much later. But yeah, but he claimed self-defense. Right, but he originally pled not guilty, and when he saw it wasn't working, he was like, uh, maybe this. It was like he was so throwing shit at the wall. To see he grabbed stuck. me by the cravat. <laughs> Oh, well then, sorry. Sorry to bother you, sir. On your way. There you go. Good job. Cravat grabbing. Very nasty business. So, of course, no one bought that. And during his trial, the prosecution brought Adam's severed head into the courtroom. This is very Lizzie Borden. What was the skull? And held it up for the jury to see. And then illustrated how Colt's hatchet fit perfectly in the holes. Yeah, for a while they were trying to convince them that there's this, there must have been a gunshot hole because they wanted to make the association between John and Sam. The cult, yeah, and they were like, if revolver. we can prove a revolver killed him, that'll just sew everything up so nice. But great headlines. Great, great headlines. headlines. But Sam came in and was like, uh, yeah, no, it would be shattered. <laughs> of willful murder, guilty found, John Caldwell cult to be. God prosper along the jury who protect the lives of us all and grant that we may a warning take by John C. Colt's fall. So he was convicted to hang. And no matter how much his brother tried to bribe everyone, the story was way too much of a press sensation to be overturned. Now, prior to his execution, he requested to marry his lover, Caroline Henshaw, 
who was pregnant. And he was given permission. And reportedly, there were several attempts to bust him out at the time, including one of his friends dressing in female clothing so that they could switch and Colt could then walk out disguised as a woman. On execution day... That's when he married his bride. True. Suddenly, the prison rang out with shouts of fire, fire. Was there really a fire or was it just my screaming? Oh yeah, I'm sure somebody said one. So whenever they went to check on the prisoners, Colt was found dead in his cell with a knife through his heart. Oh my God, did he do it? It's very suspicious, very suspicious. So Sheriff Hart, New York's top law enforcement officer at the time, started acting kind of odd. He sent the prison doctor to pronounce Cold dead, then hastily convened a coroner's jury to rule it a suicide. Then less than three hours later, the body was carried to the graveyard behind St. Mark's Church and buried. It's kind of abrupt. Now, a few days later, Miss Carolyn Henshaw called. Right, because they're married now. Also vanished. And supposedly. 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 When Sam heard the news about what had happened to his brother, he just responded, oh, thank God, thank God. Right. And I mean, this reminds me of some of the stories we told way back. There are many, many tales of people escaping prison mm-hmm. as a dead body. Yes. So, I mean, the question is, if Colt kind of paid a few people off this way, and this was the only way he can get his brother out of prison, now the Baladans... I have related all that's past. Let justice have its due. Many years hence, this may be read because it all is true. Yeah, those stories do tend to stick around and assholes like us drag them up again. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story based on it, The Oblong Box. Ah, fitting. And Melville yes. also had a little inspiration for Bartleby the Scrivener from this story. But, but, while this is a fantastic story... It's a great story. And Samuel Colt dying of gout at 48 seems appropriate and... Unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate for, him. for him. I still don't think two, two deaths do not make a curse. You want some numbers? You want to get our numbers up on this curse? Let's make it a real curse. So when Sam was seven years old, his mother, Sarah Caldwell Colt, died of tuberculosis. She was only 29 years old. And this ushered in this kind of evil stepmother figure named Olivia, who would sort of take a very hard form of control with the kids and like had them let out as servants and stuff. It was good. It was good. It was very archetypical evil stepmother fair. There were several deaths of young siblings. There was William Upson Colt, a half-brother who died when he was 27, Mary Colt, who died when she was seven. And then, of course, little Norman Colt, who died and was buried on the anniversary of his first birthday. So maybe a curse prior to when the revolver was built. Well, I don't know there's any prior to when Sam was going to build the revolver. It seems like he was on a mission from God. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And then there's Sarah Ann Colt, his sister, who committed suicide. And supposedly this is done with arsenic, though... The records, of course, are not great, and it was kept kind of hush-hush by the family. She did have some running away episodes under Olivia's iron hand, and this may have been in one of her episodes where she had run away, and supposedly she took arsenic. Now, she had been kind of fixated on death and very melancholy from a young age. She had written a lot of poems 
dealing with death and kind of dark subjects from the time that she was a kid, but you know, so did I, and I'm still around. So not one does not necessarily lead to the other. Just saying. So I'm going to keep the arsenic away from you. Please do. Now there's also a sister named Martha, and I've also seen Margaret written down, believe it's Martha, Martha Colt. And she died when she was 19. This one's interesting because there are some accounts that have it that she died of TB, which would make sense. Everyone did. But she was engaged at the time, had a fiance, and was planning to be wed. And one biographer wrote that she was snatched in the bloom of her bridal hour. Really? Right. So she was beautiful, should have been getting married, and then she died of TB. Very sad. But somehow... The legend has like grown and mutated and maybe fused with Sarah's story. And there's this very colorful, probably apocryphal story of her death in which her fiance has rejected her. And eventually he becomes engaged to another local girl and they're to be wed. And Margaret is going to attend the wedding to show everyone how strong she is and what resolve she has. And no one realizes that she is in fact heartbroken. Her father, wanting her to go and make this appearance, buys her this beautiful new white dress that she's going to wear to a wedding, which I have to say is a total bitch move. Do not wear white to weddings. Tacky. Bad form. But she's going to go and show that she is over it. And as she comes down the stairs in her beautiful white gown with all of the pearls and the lace and all of the things, no woman has ever looked more beautiful. Now she heads out the door and doubles over Sick. Oh, no. She's violently ill. TB? We don't know. Hmm. Did she cough blood into a handkerchief? Well, that is the universal sign of TB. Diagnostic criteria. No one's able to figure out what's going on with her. It's come on so suddenly and it's so violent. And finally, after hours of this writhing and moaning and dying, basically, she confesses that she took arsenic. Mm. She couldn't stomach this. She couldn't live with it. And so she dies this pristine vision all bedecked in her finest by her own hand. Now, Samuel Colt also had many of his children die. So Samuel Jarvis died at 10 months and Elizabeth died at eight months. Henrietta died only 10 days after Sam Colt died. And when he died, his wife was pregnant and she delivered a stillborn child. Now, one of his sons that did survive into adulthood, Caldwell Hart Colt, died at 35 mysteriously aboard his yacht. And of course, there were all manner of rumors, but this was the last surviving heir to the cult factories, cult fortune, cult everything. His wife, his poor, poor wife at this point has now lost all of her children and her husband. She never remarried. And all of that happened in like five years. They were only married like five years. And I've always felt terribly sorry for her. There are several other kind of cursed does related to cult name. And not only just from being shot by a cult revolver in the Wild West. Now, these are people who kind of directly helped the gun progress. You know, kind of helped it become the gun that would help win the West. And one of these people was Sam Walker. And do you know what he was? Was he a Texas Ranger? Yes, he was a, he was a Walker Texas Ranger. This yes. is true. It's yes. actually 
True. Now, he helped refine the revolver design, and he also kind of spearheaded this effort to have the Texas Rangers adopt this as their firearm. And so the gun that he worked on with Sam was named the Walker Colt due to his influence and help. He was killed in the Battle of Hamatla, shot with a shotgun from a balcony. But interestingly, he had received a pair of pistols in the mail direct from Sam only four days before his death. There had been some mix-up with a larger shipment that was meant to arm the entire group. And so Sam had taken it upon himself to send him these two revolvers directly. And so he had them for about four days, was killed by a rogue shotgun off a balcony in a battle. And one of the guns was mailed back to Sam Colt as memento of his now deceased friend. These are an interesting pieces because they were the only ones produced in that group of Walker Colts that were for civilian use. And there were only 100 of them made. And you can still see the Walker Colt Colt that belonged to Walker at the Colt factory. Wow, that's confusing. <laughs> but anyway. Now, another man who was very helpful to Sam Colt was Abel Upshur who was the Secretary of the Navy and Secretary of State. He was also sort of Sam's man in Washington. He was trying to get the military to invest in one of Sam's harebrained schemes. Sam wanted to make these underwater battery units, sort of underwater mines that could be detonated from far away in a lookout tower if there was a ship approaching. And this goes back to Sam blowing up a boat on the 4th of July. He was just sure that this was going to be the thing. In 1841, he gave Sam a $6,000 advance for his submarine battery system. And this allowed Sam to begin offering his company publicly and basically bankrolled him for an amount of time that allowed him to get to a point where he could produce these revolvers that he was so interested in. This is the money that kind of did that. Now, what happened, you may ask? Well, Sam was planning this big demonstration where he was going to blow up a boat again for the president. It's a trend. Oh, tip a canoe. No, Tyler, too. Oh, you're right. Hey, John Tyler was on the USS Princeton along with like Dolly Madison. Oh, yeah. And his, yeah. And lots like of his people. whole cabinet, like a bunch of people. They were not following the designated survivor rule. Let's just say that. And they were like, let's shoot the big guns. Right. The USS Princeton was this like marvel of modern engineering. It was this boat that has nothing to do with Sam Colt that was produced to surpass all previous naval armaments. So it was a big fucking deal, man. Big guns. Called. Ironically. Wait, wait, called? The Peacemaker. That's ironic. That's ironic. Well, it's ironic, and then it's ironic that that's what the Colt became. Exactly. Right, yeah. So John Tyler, Abel Upshur, bunch of other people, all the important people are on board. And all the ladies are downstairs kind of milling around. They're having an exhibition gala. And the men go upstairs to shoot the gun. Sounds appropriate. Sounds appropriate. So all the ladies are downstairs. Men go upstairs and they're like, why don't we shoot it? That's a good idea. Pete, get me the thingy. And so they go to shoot this giant gun and it backfires and kills like four people, injures 28. And one of the people who was killed in this exhibition is Abel Upshur. Sam's man in Washington. So now he's very much on an uphill slope with getting the president out to another explosive <laughs> demonstration of naval might, but he pulls it off. And so 
thanks, Abel. I guess you're not your brother's keeper. No. Yeah, I did it. So in addition to the men who are helping him along his way, who meet really weird ends, there is this incident involving Sam's will where the paternity of that jail baby. Jail baby. The jail baby. The baby was there before the jail. (laughs) Well, the jail wedding baby, the baby that Caroline Henshaw was pregnant with that was named Samuel Colt. Um, comes into question. Who do they think it was? Well, the baby was supposedly fathered by J.C. or John, right? But it was named Samuel, so that was weird. And I'm sure they really could use that money. (laughs) Well, he does show up after Sam's death because Sam left him $2 million in his, well, what would be $2 million today in his will. And Elizabeth, his wife, his widow, was like, uh, no. I don't think we're going to do that, even though we have 1.5 of all GDP at this time. But then Samuel, the other Samuel cult, produces a marriage certificate that proves that Sam married Caroline Henshaw in Scotland years before. Oh, so lots of lots of weddings. <laughs> yes. And they were supposedly married in 1838. And uh, that was awkward. Awkward. That was awkward. And so we now have his legacy being assaulted a little. And then in 1863, the East Colt Armory was burnt to the ground, allegedly by Confederate sympathizers. And then one last, one last one I've just got to put in here. The judge that oversaw J.C.'s case, the original judge, Judge Seward. Yeah. Who committed him to be hung. Yes. Hanged. (laughs) He got a weird one. He got a weird kind of cosmic retribution for that one what happened well he was the secretary of state under lincoln but during all of you know the conspiracy to assassinate all who might ever want to be yankees and run government yeah i mean they got lincoln we know that and so after the rest we go and they were going to kill lots of people that was the plan it didn't really happen but seward did get a bowie knife to the face Hmm. And survived and had horrific Um, scars. So that's just a fun little bonus curse. Just get on everything. So Samuel Colt, in the process of creating one of of the guns that won the West, Mm -hmm. had what one could consider a family curse, even though he doesn't have a sprawling labyrinthine home with... Civil War soldiers and Native Americans haunting it. He has a sad history of of death of his children and his family and a lot of people that were involved with him and helped him become the man he was and helped the cult revolver become the peacemaker. And so when I was looking at these two curses, these dueling gun manufacturer curses if you will, and you will, because you're here, you have to wonder about the intent. You have to wonder, is there something different about a man who's passionate about creating destruction, like Sam Colt, compared to a man like Winchester, who's looking for a good business opportunity, when it's something in you? Does it become its own kind of curse? Can you be cursed by your passions? Can you curse your family because you are so 
hell bent on some pursuit that you are unable to see the cost. And maybe it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as arming Americans for centuries and, you know, the world at large. Maybe these are the things that come up in practical ways as we relate to our family. Maybe these are the things we can't let go. Maybe these are the things that we put ahead of those we love. Maybe these are the things that make us take them for granted. Because this is what really stands out to me about all of the curses that we've talked about from the beginning of time, sort of literally, is that they are the consequences of not heeding good advice, not listening to those who we have dominion over, who we have authority over, to taking things for granted. I mean, from the Garden of Eden on, it's all about taking things for granted. And maybe that's all these are for. Just to remind us. To remind us of what is important. To remind us of the connections we have to people and the obligations and privileges that come with that. And so maybe that's one reason that we have these stories of family curses. Because having a family is a privilege. But sometimes we can, like you said, take things for granted. And, and maybe that, maybe forgetting the important things in our family, whether that be blood of our chosen family, maybe that's the curse. And that's not just a story. That's not just a story.